he's like the proud, honor obsessed samurai of a yakuza family. <laughs> I feel like you just kind of guessed that, and unfortunately, it is correct. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Justin Park, game developer at Kitten Cup Studios, and notably a moderator extraordinaire in the Cerebro fan discord. God love you. Love you all. But it's a lot to moderate. It is a lot to moderate. Justin, how are you today? (laughs) I'm doing really good. I'm so excited to be here. This is like a dream come true. Um, Still wild to believe this is happening. For real though, this podcast has meant a lot to me and to a lot of people over the past one and a half years or so. Well, you've been a big part of that. Wow. (laughs) No, you have, because here's the thing. The Discord server is, I think, a big part of this show. The community that has sprung up around this show is the thing I really wasn't anticipating. And you were the first mod I brought in who wasn't someone I had already known for like 10 years. (laughs) You know, and you really took to it. You were the person in the Discord where when I was talking to Lou and Luke and I was like, we need more people. The first person we thought was, well, I mean, Justin, you know, kind of a stealth moderator already. I mean, we joke that you're like the camp counselor. And so we were like, (laughs) let's give him an actual camp counselor whistle or whatever to, to keep these kids in line. We've expanded the mod team considerably uh, in the time since, which has been great. Yeah, love all of you. But for a while, it was just the three of you, and you watched the Discord blossom into a thing that now has like 1,600 people in it. So Mm -hmm. I am very appreciative because I don't want to moderate the Discord, and (laughs) it's very helpful to me to have people who are willing and eager to do so. We are here today to talk about Shiro Yoshida, Sunfire, one of the second Genesis giant size X-Men very briefly. And now the final member in terms of coverage on this podcast of Jerry Duggan and Pepe Larath's current team of X-Men in the flagship title, the first Krakoan X-Men. He's come a long way, baby. I have waited a while to do this character because the thing that's interesting about him is while he's introduced in X-Men comics and then he's part of Giant Size, which is one of the biggest X-Men moments, a lot of his bigger stuff happens in Avengers comics or Submariner comics or even Alpha Flight. Like he's sort of all over the place. And so a lot of his character history I hadn't really read So I wanted to take the time to do that before covering him. But I know that you, meticulous type that you are, have read every single appearance of this character in anticipation of this podcast. (laughs) Actually, I have a confession to make. I was not able to find a copy of something called Black Axe Number 2, which is some sort of Marvel UK comic that apparently... Well, guess what? Don't worry about it, because I skipped it in the character file, because I couldn't Amazing. find it either. So <laughs> I, I, I if that couldn't somehow tell is you. Like a super vital piece. No, of... I even went and checked. <laughs> I even went and checked on countyaxman.net because I was like, right. surely they found it, and I didn't see mm-hmm. them talk about it. So I was like, you Amazing. know what? Here's the thing. If a story is not in a character's profile on uncannyxman.net, it is not a story you need to know about. 
it's just fair not. Enough, fair enough. So I was yeah. like, you know what? I'm going to take that as permission to not care what happened in Black Axe. But to the Marvel UK listeners out there, if you know what happened to Sunfire <laughs> in Black Axe number whatever, please feel free to reach out. Cerebrocast at gmail.com. This <laughs> is the first episode of February. February is an exciting slate. We've got this episode. Then coming up is Josh Cornillon on Stacey X, Victor Laval on Sabretooth, and Kat Overland on Chamber. Questions are still open for Honestly, I think just cat because I'm recording a bunch of quick sequence. So if you have chamber questions, feel free to send those in. Justin, what is it about Sunfire that interests you? Because ages ago when we talked about you maybe coming on the show, this was the character you wanted to talk about. What is it about this guy that intrigues you? So the thing about Sunfire, Shiro, is that I have a lot of complicated feelings about him as a character. I really want to like him, but there are a couple of red flags. One, literally. <laughs> well, a literal <laughs> one. There are a bunch of questions about Sunfire's Rising Sun flag costume and about sure. Japanese imperialism. So we'll definitely get to that in the question mm-hmm. section in a big way. Mm-hmm. Just in case anyone listening is like, are they going to talk? Trust me, we're going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear about your origin story with the X-Men, your journey to these characters, and what made you love this franchise generally. Yeah, for sure. In terms of comics in general, uh, unlike a lot of the other guests on this podcast, I never really grew up with comics. Like, I had read manga a little bit as a kid and, like, some graphic novels here and there. But, like, American superhero comics were never something that I particularly had a lot of access to and just hadn't really got around to. I did become a big fan of the MCU movies, which was sort of my gateway into the comic books, especially after Infinity War. I was like so impatient for new content. And around that time, the store downstairs for me, the comic book store downstairs for me was having a closing sale. And I picked up a bunch of random trades, House of M, Civil War, Spider-Man, Young Avengers. And it felt like fate almost that they just happened to be having that big sale right at that time. I was just hooked instantly. Like I really liked the feeling of putting a puzzle together, sort of like sorting out these decades of continuity and like collecting these things. In terms of X-Men specifically, I had watched like the Fox movies. I read too much Charles and Eric fan fiction, Um, but the (laughs) X-Men comics had never quite like grabbed me. Like I had started out reading mostly Avengers stuff and Mm -hmm. I would read like some of the crossovers. I picked up like Gillen and Fraction and Brubaker runs because I was familiar with them as writers. Well, and much as I love those writers, it's not the best period of the X-Men. I mean, I am so excited that Kieran Gillen is getting to write the X-Men again in a Mm -hmm. time when I think he'll be able to be at the full potential of what he can do. The Decimation era was so limiting in terms of story and what anybody could Mm -hmm. do with the Mm -hmm. characters. But yeah, so like for a lot of like small reasons like that, they had never really quite grabbed me. Although funnily enough, the first single issues of a comic that I had ever bought were X-Man issues number two through four that I picked up at like a gift shop in Prince Edward Island where I was on vacation with my family. Oh, that's right, because you're Canadian. This is another Toronto (laughs) guest. (laughs) Yeah. But so you got a healthy dose of Maddie Pryor in those comics, even if it was in a very confusing moment. Was she in those issues? I genuinely don't remember. Numbers two through four? 
Oh no, because that's AOA. That's AOA, so she's not there. Yeah, yet. yeah, that's still like yeah, during yeah, the yeah. age of apocalypse. Uh, I did not understand what I was buying. At no, all. I mean, well, even <laughs> if you knew what the X Men were, Age of Apocalypse was a confusing moment to jump in, and X Men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is probably the most confusing of all the titles because he's yeah. a totally new character. And they also didn't have issue one. So I opened it and there was like a yeah, theater that's tough. That's tough. And it's someone Forge named Forge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, who the fuck is Forge? I mean, I would love to see Forge maybe get into the theater in 616 <laughs> proper because <laughs> what is be it really about yeah. a world without Charles where Forge felt drawn to the theater? That is really interesting. I would love mm-hmm. to know more. What's Krakoa's like community theater scene like? You know, I have argued really... that the ladies' mastermind yes, are involved, of course. and mm-hmm. so you know that would be fun. But I feel like they would be more like like big picture, like movies and TV almost. You know, like. But I bet Mastermind Studios funds like absolutely, yeah one of those theater in central park kind of things mm-hmm, except it's mm-hmm, like in a krakoa mm-hmm. area like yeah. there's like probably like green lagoon shakespeare except mm-hmm. it's like mutant shakespeare i don't know or like greek style like celine is like commissioning plays about her or something absolutely and- <laughs> absolutely she would do that oh now mm. Now I just want to write that. I, there's so yeah. many. We'll get you there. Don't worry. Yeah, there are so many <laughs> Infinity comics I'd love to do about stupid bullshit happening in the Green Lagoon. Honestly, though. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So X-Man. Confusing. Nonsense. I tried reading all new X-Men was, I think, like the very first The Bendis. Trait. The Bendis all new X-Men. Someone was like, it was recommended to me in the form of like, oh, it's about like the original five. And I'm like, okay, that sounds like a good starting point. Um, it was not, unfortunately. <laughs> so I just had some bad luck in like picking up X-Men comic books. And then I don't know if you've heard of a little something called the 2019 soft reboot House of X Powers of 10 by Jonathan Hickman. I sure have. <laughs> yeah. Uh, House of X number two. Number one was like fantastic, especially looking back at it now. But I was like still not quite sure what was just going like on. I don't know what the fuck is happening. Exactly, right. especially because like I had been collecting single issues of the X Men comics for the first time in my life. It was just after Age of X Men, the event, and I was expecting it to be more important. <laughs> so I was kind of like, well, where's Nate Gray? Aren't we gonna Aren't we gonna hear more about that? Um, we did not. <laughs> it turns out that was not important at all. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, sometimes that's how it goes. Yeah. You know, I had to learn sometimes, you know, marketing lies, right? Yep. God bless them. They're doing whatever they need to do. It's literally their job. (laughs) But then House of X number two was the one that was like, okay, like you can see sort of X-Men continuity. When the Moira bomb drops, it's crazy. Exactly. I was like, oh, Rose Byrne? Sure. Um, (laughs) But it was the first issue that had me sort of realize like the scope of X-Men continuity. And I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, I am hooked. I need to know everything about this. And I kept reading along the single issues that were coming out. I was working at a comic book shop, luckily, at the time, um, which is another good way to like sort of pick up on information kind of by osmosis almost absolutely yeah but it wasn't until i started listening to cerebro that i started like really feeling like i understood the comics almost that makes me happy to hear no absolutely like it helped having someone explain it to me in publication order especially because like the retcons are what really grabs me or like really confuses me i should say i think that's what makes x-men continuity so hard to get into specifically is how much it's been retconned over the years Mm -hmm. i feel like even with the avengers or the fantastic four the journey is a lot more straightforward 
Absolutely. That's why I approached it that way here, because if I'm explaining it to people, I feel like they should hear about the characters in the order that everything happened in reality, not in the story. Mm -hmm. Like you kind of need to know what was there first in order to understand like what had changed. Yeah, I mean, Jean Grey is the great example, right? Yeah. Jean was Phoenix, then there was a retcon to try and absolve her, then the retcon got undone, then the this and that. That's the kind of thing that you only get by tracking it chronologically the way that Jay and Mm -hmm. Miles do, or in this Mm -hmm. case, by tracing one character all the way through. I'm glad that that's been helpful to people, you know, and I'm happy to provide that service, I guess, insofar as Cerebro is a public work of some kind. No, it absolutely is. Listening to the podcast and following along was what really just like got me hooked. I eventually got around to reading the Claremont run. I was very... How do I phrase this? I indulged my completionist tendencies a little bit too much by deciding (laughs) that I would read the 60s X-Men run first, which... I told you not to do that. I did. (laughs) No, I remember in the early days of the Discord, like, I would be like, oh, what the fuck is going on here? And then someone would be like, weren't you reading, like, the issue before this, like, two months ago? And I'm like, it takes a long time to get through. They're, like, weird and... There's a lot of words on the page. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> it doesn't take that long if you just jump to 1975. Or yeah, even, quite honestly, well. <laughs> if you just jump to like 50. Yeah, the later well, when stuff. When the Cobalt the 60s, Man comes back, I all literally gonna was going to. Well, the thing is, the, the thing about the Cobalt Man is that the Cobalt Man actually is around sometimes. What's funny is that his brother, who Gene was fucking at that time, is never seen again, as far as I know. Like, the Cobalt Man is introduced as, it's like, Gene's college boyfriend has an evil brother, but then it's the evil brother who has persisted as, like, a mook you can kick around the way that, you know, Stilt Man or whoever <laughs> is... <laughs> yeah hot take cobalt man is the stilt man of x-men comics yeah i mean i don't even think he's in x-men comics anymore i can't think of the last time the cobalt man tangled with the x-men but i feel like he's always on like the raft or whatever like he's always like in those all the villains are around doing something unimportant kind of thing for sure well when he takes magneto's seat on the quiet council you'll all see so we'll all see we will all <laughs> See. So I guess that kind of brings me to Shiro, I guess, speaking of 60s X-Men comics. Yeah, what is it about this character? I mean, obviously there is the basic fact of him being the most prominent East Asian male character yeah. in this franchise. I know that that is part of it for you, it but that's also is. complicated because you're Korean and he's Japanese, which is not... It <laughs> is extremely complicated, and uh, I, I suppose we'll get to that part. We'll um, definitely get there, yeah. But what is it about him that you do like that makes you attached to the character? I think one thing that I like about him is the fact that he's been around for such a long time. You know, like we so often think of comic books as like a space that's been so overtly dominated by like white, straight, cis men. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it has. Um, Yeah. but But like there absolutely has been, even since like 1970, like an effort to put characters from marginalized backgrounds into these comics. And I think it's important to sort of honor that while still like pushing for more yeah and if you look at his first story also Mm. in x-men 64 shortly before the book is canceled he's one of the last new characters introduced if you look at it 
you know, Roy Thomas in that story writes a pretty sympathetic portrait of the Japanese people suffering in the aftermath of Hiroshima, which is not necessarily what you would expect from an American comic I in 1970. I did not expect that, no. <laughs> in fact, I think in some ways it was to my benefit that I didn't expect it because I went into it with like extremely low expectations. And I was mm-hmm. like, wow, this is not as racist as it could have been. Yeah, You know, that shouldn't have to be a plus, but it was. But when it comes to East Asian stuff in superhero comics, expectations are generally pretty low because... They absolutely are, yeah. In this genre, a lot of white people who thought Asian aesthetics were cool wrote a lot of weird racist shit. Plus, you have a lot of Yellow Peril characters who Sunfire never really has been. Well... When written really badly, (laughs) but in terms of his introduction and the way he's positioned most of the time, I think that's not, as opposed to a character like Shang-Chi, who was Mm. tied exclusively to Fu Manchu, or the way that the Mandarin is a really fraught character. Uh, Yellow Claw? Yellow Claw, not great. Mm -hmm. Sunfire... While he is a little bit of a stereotype in some ways, he's like the proud, honor-obsessed samurai of a Yakuza family. (laughs) I feel like you just kind of guessed that, and unfortunately it is correct. Because at a certain point, you can kind of call these things, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, that's it's just odd because, well, it's partly that Claremont makes him Mariko's cousin and introduces Mariko's family, which is a much more crime-oriented family than Shiro's family because Shiro's father is like the official Japanese ambassador to the United Nations. <laughs> like he's like Yeah, but then you get his uncle. But his evil it, so. uncle. <laughs> they love an evil uncle in these stories. They Karma love... also has an evil uncle. Yeah, yeah. It really breaks barriers, you know, like Asian people can have racist uncles too. And that's uh... Yeah. I mean I think maybe part of it is like when white people are conceptualizing an Asian character, there's an emphasis on, like, filial piety, right? There absolutely is. Like, ah, yes, I must honor my ancestors. Right. All of that nonsense. All the way down to Armor, who's literally, like, empowered by her ancestors. But in terms of the evil uncle, with both Shiro and Karma, Xian Koiman, mm-hmm. the emphasis is very much... And Vietnamese listeners wrote in to say that this totally makes sense to them in the case of karma. The idea that karma would sooner trust her uncle who she knows to be evil than the Hellfire Club that she suspects to be evil but is a bunch of people who are not related to her. Absolutely. Okay, General Koi's evil, but he's my uncle, so we're a family. We can make this work. Like, that is something that is cultural that makes sense. And Shiro definitely is that. He has the same evil uncle thing where it's like, my father was a great guy, but my evil uncle has manipulated me to do crimes. It's interesting because family in X-Men comics is not usually that major a plot driver unless the family members are also mutants. Like if it's like the Summer's Grey line or Rogue is Mystique and Destiny's daughter or whatever. Most of the time when it's human family, with the exception of like Ma Guthrie, it's usually like, oh, they didn't understand me and I left or whatever. With these Asian characters, there is more of an emphasis on the idea of a mutant being a weapon that a family can use or like an emphasis on a household. 
in which the mutant character is exceptional, but is still part of the household and that's sort of their primary character relationship. Shiro is more closely associated with Clan Yoshida than he is with the X-Men for most of his publication history. Yeah, the karmic comparison is interesting. Uh, I hadn't really thought about that until just now, actually, but they are both very much like weaponized by their family members yeah. in a way that a lot of other X-Men characters there would normally be like sort of a shunning or an embarrassment like you talked about earlier or like the family is mutants and then that's its own kind of drama. Right. But here it's like you are our samurai heir also you have, I mean, so the thing about Sunfire that's tricky for people unfamiliar with the character, Sunfire is a flag suit character Mm -hmm. like Captain America or like Captain Britain. He wears specifically the rising sun flag. Sorry, real quick. Like, should we just do the flag stuff first? Because I feel like we're kind of talking around it. And I don't know if it's... You know what? Yeah, let's go out of order this time. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to read a couple questions before we get into the regular part of the episode. Sure. Actually, yeah, for let's sure. actually, you know what? Let's do the questions about the imperialist stuff and then the character file. And then we'll just get into like the actual comics. Because you're absolutely fantastic. right. It is a big solar elephant in the room that we have to address you know (laughs) no for sure and like i want to have fun while talking about the character i do too and let's get this out of the way because it is heavy fucking stuff and then i can start drinking that's a great (laughs) point and i already started drinking so you need to catch up actually sorry one thing that i forgot it's like a really small anecdote but it does kind of come back up later so i did want to just like yeah no go for it um i have no idea how this is going to edit together i'm so sorry um it's fine. It probably won't, because here's the thing. In 2022, <laughs> in 2022, Honestly, baby, like, in 2022, I am spending half as much time editing because I've truly <laughs> lost my mind editing for the last for year sure. and a half. And if we want to keep the show going, which I want to keep it going, Absolutely. I'm going to have to leave some ums in here and there, and I'm going to have to have a couple... So if you guys just hear an X-Men, X-Men suddenly, randomly in the middle of the show, it's because, I don't know, guys, I just couldn't figure out how to splice together this audio and I got to go to work. Absolutely. But anyway, no, go ahead. What were you saying? So real quick, the first time that I had ever heard of Sunfire is extremely bizarre. Have you heard of Big Hero 6, the movie by Disney Pixar? Yeah, with the hot older brother. That is Sorry, that's fucked up of me. No, but no, no. There was so much gay porn fan art of that character that I think that's where I first became conscious of that movie. No, but like that the is dead literally brother, he's hot. the most important part of this movie. Because yeah. first, like you said, he is super hot. He is voiced by Daniel Henney, who is somehow who even is hotter. one of the hottest men ever to live. He's so hot. Like, I just... Outstandingly. I know that he's your Namor fan cast. He's my Namor fan cast, yeah. My mother is a big Criminal Minds fan, or was. Mm -hmm. I guess it's over now. And so when he joined the cast of Criminal Minds, she was like, who the hell is that? He's gorgeous. I was like, yes. Gay people know, because he was a model first. (laughs) So he was all over... It's like Jamie Dornan. It's like, we knew this person before he got an acting job. Well, you're going to get mad at me, but this was actually the first time I had heard about him. Oh, no, that's fine. No, that's (gasps) fine. You're young. And you're only half gay. This was way back. (laughs) We're getting (laughs) right into it. Justin's bisexual. Sorry, we're getting right into it. And... I don't say half. I was be- that. That's a joke between us. I don't mean. There's nothing wrong with. <laughs> it's not. That's not a value judgment. That's. I mean, 100%. No, 
I not mean, if we want to get to be sappy for a second, derogatory. one of the first letters that I ever sent in to this podcast was about the Iceman episode. Was about how Tony and I tackled the question of whether Iceman should be bisexual. Mm-hmm. That's how yeah. we first so, got to know each other, was you writing absolutely. in about Absolutely. Yeah, so, like, honestly, on the basis of that alone, you have, like, a free pass, so, like, it's fine. Well, I... thank you. <laughs> I mean, you know. Anyways, Big Hero 6. Um, for people who are not aware, Big Hero 6 is, like, the Japanese <laughs> version of... Alpha Flight. Alpha Flight is probably the closest comparison. In that they're not important to the broader Marvel universe, but they yeah, are like a thing bring, that I'm exists bring in the up background. The, the Winter Guard, yeah, they're like one oh, of those. Oh, yeah, like, great. Also, the Winter Guard in Russia, similar kind of thing. Or over at DC, it's like the Global Guardians, where you're like, who are these characters? Nobody cares. And I love the Global Guardians, but, you know. <laughs> Listen, if it's DC and it's not about Nightwing's ass, I have no idea what you're talking about to be completely that is entirely fair and is why luke reddick's troll question did not make it through because god bless you luke if you're listening but it was all about dc characters like starfire and fire and what (laughs) there was a spitfire but basically asking all these questions about sunfire but it was not sunfire characters i was like this will be too confusing for the listeners also amazing just even reads dc i absolutely do not no i'm sorry sorry luke love you um. Anyway, anyway, so Big Hero 6, the Disney movie that was emphatically not a Marvel movie. I remember that at the time, which was odd. They were like, it's not Marvel, it's Disney. And I was like, okay, but... It was confusing because the thing about Big Hero 6 in the comics is that the main characters are Sunfire and Silver Samurai. Yes. Who are X-Men characters. And yes. And this was during... And are not times. in this Disney movie exactly. at all. Which, like, honestly, might have been for the best, looking back, because I don't know how well they would have handled the flag suit. Um, yeah. I did not know this at the time, but apparently, like, they had to edit it when they released it in Korea to hide, like, random background shots that had, like, pictures of the flag in it and stuff that like that. That makes sense, though. Yeah, exactly. And it's we'll get, like, we're, big... again, we're going to get into the flag in a second. <laughs> I'm jumping around again. someone wrote in and was like, what's the thing with the flag? And I'm like, we're going to get to the thing with the flag. But yes, so Big Hero 6. So Big Hero 6. Your anecdote. Older brother, super hot. Yes, Um, Daniel Henney. Voiced by Daniel Super hot, he's dead. Spoiler alert. He dies. Right. And specifically, he dies in a fire. At the time, I am ashamed to admit I was on Tumblr, and there were Tumblr theories going around that he didn't actually die in the fire, but he would come back as a character associated with fire called Sunfire. And that would be like how they resurrected him. Very Mephisto is going to be in WandaVision. That absolutely, yeah, like Mephisto before Mephisto, basically. Yeah. Looking back, that makes no sense at all, especially because Disney did not have the rights to Sunfire. Disney didn't have the rights to Sunfire. He's an X Men character. (laughs) But I was dumb. I was young. And I was like, oh, I'm fucking sold. We're going to get Daniel Henney back in these movies. Um, So that was my introduction to Sunfire. That's so funny. Yeah. And I had sort of clocked that the flag was not great, but I was like not super aware Mm -hmm. of all of the connotations. Because like he wasn't actually in the movie. So I just saw him. Right. No, exactly. mm -hmm. It's just like, who? is that i'm gonna go on wikipedia right yeah like i saw a picture i'm like oh that's a little bit yikes and then i went back to looking at pictures of daniel Hetty. so for people who are completely unfamiliar with this character yes. basically he's in a slightly awkward position because he's at the end of the 60s x-men run in 1970 mm-hmm. and therefore his origin story about being a mutant is radiation based mm-hmm. because pre-claremont it's not genetic it's nuclear powered yeah, like Charles's dad works for the Manhattan Project. Exactly, Beast, and yeah, Beast's like dad is in mm-hmm. is working in the nuclear facility and yada yada yada. In this case, 
Shiro's mother was exposed to the atomic radiation from Hiroshima. Yes. She died giving birth to him because she was very sickly, and he turns out to be a mutant. And that is an interesting, again, it's interesting to get from an American story because Japanese media is obsessed with Hiroshima becoming a sci-fi or fantasy thing. You look at Godzilla, which is literally about Hiroshima. You look at Rashomon, which is allegorically about the rape of Japan by the West. Like there's lots of stuff going on that Hiroshima is like this indelible earth shattering moment. And it was unusual in Western stuff at the time. Things that painted the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki as atrocities, as like Mm -hmm. war crimes is not something you would see very often in American media. And I sh- like they don't do it perfectly. It is still no, 1970s, no, but like exactly. grading on a curve for the time period, like that is kind of revolutionary in its own way. His mutation is born from the fact that America dropped a nuclear yeah. bomb. It's on very his much like America creating its own enemies, which is yes. like not a concept you would see right back then. Right, right, and it's just an interesting. It's very daring in a way that I think in the era of corporate comics, it might be too much. Absolutely. It was an earlier time when you could still really do things like that. And that's not to suggest people don't do daring political stories now, but I found it notable. When I went back and read 64, I was like, you know, this is pretty out there for 1970 in America, in a pop culture thing for kids. And especially because, like you said, like at the time all mutant powers were sort of like vaguely linked to radiation. Yes. So to have Shiro as like sort of the Japanese almost counterpart to like the American origin story, which is, you know, like these radiation nuclear powers developed because we were working on this. That's the thing, right? Like all of the X-Men come out of nuclear power, out of the Manhattan Project, the Manhattan Project, which produces the bomb that blows up Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. There is a really interesting angle by which this thing that empowers the American heroes also empowers this person who is very easily twisted by his uncle into an agent of anti-American sentiment. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I would also be pretty anti-American if my mother died because of radiation from Hiroshima. Like, yeah, duh. We'll get there, but there's a really interesting scene between him and Dragoness. Oh my God, Dragoness. In New Mutants. <laughs> Where she's like, I also have my mutant powers because of Hiroshima, but I have chosen evil. And they have like Mm. a great exchange that I think is, I mean, for like a Rob Liefeld comic, pretty, uh, yeah, pretty thoughtful. Yeah. Sorry. I don't want to jump around too much. No, we're not going to jump around too much. Different thoughts. I'm going to get us. No, actually, I'm going to get us back on track. We were going to do the questions about the flag. Sure. Yeah. So let's get to that. Javier Martinez writes, Hi, Connor and Justin. Love the podcast. I look forward to it every week, and I'm especially grateful for the whole new perspective you've been this flat scan, who's been an X-Men fan since the Pride of the X-Men arcade game days. I've been eagerly waiting for this episode just to ask this question. Why is Sunfire's original costume so controversial? I'm genuinely curious because all the research I've tried to do online has given me no answers. 
Does it take something sacred or culturally significant to Japan and trivialize it? Is it a relic of the Yellow Peril comics from the 30s and 40s? Does it come from the wrong Asian country and the creators didn't do their research? Nothing against AOA Sunfire and all the other attempts to clean up the design, but I grew up in the 90s really liking his original look. Thanks again. Love all the work you and your colleagues are doing. Sincerely, Javier. Listening from San Francisco, but born and raised in Rockland County, New York, so no exotic accents required. So here's the gist as I understand it. And then I'm going to let Justin take it away because I'm going to give you my like very basic white American understanding of this. Sunfire specifically wears the rising sun flag, which is a very controversial flag. It is the flag that warlords used back during the Edo period, which was like hundreds of years ago. And then the Meiji government in the 19th century made it the war flag of the imperial army. And so under that flag, a lot of atrocities were committed in World War II specifically, but also just in general. If you are Korean, Filipino, places that were colonized in nasty ways by Japan have a big problem with this flag. In China, it is seen as basically like a swastika because it is associated with the rape of Nanking. The controversy in East Asia is that Japan is very intense about not sort of ceding ground on this issue. And the flag is associated very specifically with that. And so this character wearing that flag as the primary superheroic representative of Japan in the Marvel Universe has been very controversial. So... Did I get any of that right? (laughs) You... Got most of that correct. Okay. The basic facts are, yes, the flag suit is based on the rising sun flag, which is considered offensive to a lot of people, especially in East Asian and Southeast Asian countries, because, like you said, of the historical atrocities committed by the Empire of Japan in the 20th century while flying that flag, basically. I remember at the Olympics recently, there was like a huge thing where Korea and China specifically campaigned to have that flag banned from the Olympics and the IOC wouldn't do it. And it was a whole thing. Yeah, I think that's probably the most like recent controversy of it. But it, it has been sort of an issue like on and off. Yeah, for a long time. Quite Certainly a as long as I've been alive, I remember mm-hmm. this being mm-hmm. a thing that people talk about. Yeah. The one thing, see, this is where I want to be careful not to like be too lenient on this but my understanding is that like people in the japanese government have acknowledged and apologized for a lot of stuff that happened during world war ii it's confusing because like with any government that you know sort of changes over time there has been sort of back and forth basically where like people will acknowledge it and apologize and then the next government might and my sense is like that the heads of state have not formally like there's that shrine that everybody is yeah. angry about yasakuni the yasakuni shrine i was yasakuni like i know shrine. the name of the shrine yeah. <laughs> i was like i swear to god <laughs> you're doing great connor don't worry like you are correct on the fact that the flag is considered offensive like i'm glad that you made this wasika comparison because i would not have felt comfortable doing so no but i'm gonna do it and people yeah. have argued like it's not quite the same because the nazis introduced this wasika there's a exactly. long history with that And I get that. But World War II, guys, it was bad. The Axis powers were bad. It was bad stuff. Bad stuff happened. So I get it. I get why if you're someone whose people suffered under an Axis regime, I understand looking at that flag and going, hmm, I'd rather not. 
have that around, you know? For sure. And I think this is where it's important for me to acknowledge that, like, so I am Korean. I was born in South Korea. I moved to Canada when I was about a year old. So I was not, like, necessarily raised, immersed in Korean culture or anything like that. I don't know that I was, like, fully aware of the full history between Japan and Korea until, like, high schoolish at the earliest. I remember, actually, one kind of embarrassing moment where, so in high school, I was taking Japanese as, like, a language elective. Mm. And I was talking to a friend of mine about it who was also Korean. And he was like, oh, yeah, my grandmother speaks Japanese. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then he had to be He's like, like, not so cool. Like, no, Justin, that's, <laughs> this wasn't like a fun hobby for her. Like, not, <laughs> it's because of colonialism. Yeah, yes. right. And I was like, oh, fuck. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so like even my grandparents were born during Japanese occupation of Korea. But like I like that wasn't something that we really discussed in our family mm-hmm. as I was growing up. So I didn't really personally have a lot of the like visceral instinctive reactions that a lot of people will have to this flag. That being said, I want to be 100% clear that I totally understand that if anyone is uncomfortable or not happy seeing this flag and like that association affects their reading of Shiro Sunfire in comics and they just like don't want to see him anymore like that is absolutely understandable. Well, I'll say I think it's a really good thing that they've given him a new costume and that it's yes. really cool looking and that hopefully it's his costume now forever because it's great and it has none of that on it. It looks fucking great. Shout looks out great. to I think it would have been Pepe Larath. I think it was I think. Pepe Larath, yeah. I love the negative space. Yes, and it synthesizes kind of the classic look with the AOA look, which people really mm-hmm. love, which we'll get yeah. to. But most importantly, it has the colors of the Japanese flag and some cool fiery affectations to it without being literally the flag of the imperial military. Exactly, yeah. And in terms of like why the flag is still controversial, part of it is a lot of people in Korea and in other countries that were invaded, colonized, oppressed by the Japanese Empire during World War II and before then, they either like don't really see the official statements made by the Japanese government as apologies or they don't as adequate sufficient to po- exactly yeah so it's like i wouldn't quite say that they've never apologized sure it's just like i always think of the comfort women controversy because that's something yes. that i'm familiar with i don't want to get into too much detail but this was like a forced prostitution thing yeah women were abducted and taken as and forced to sexually service the yeah. japanese army And the Japanese army was flying this flag. So, uh, you know, Google the comfort women, actually, if you haven't, because it's a really important part of history, world history, recent world history that is not well understood in the West and is a huge thing that still affects women who are alive today. Yes. That's the thing that I always think of when this flag controversy comes up is like Nanking and then the comfort women, because my aunt is like an international women's rights attorney. So it's just like something I was, that's again, like you grew up aware of certain things and not aware of certain things, but I knew about those women. You know what I mean? So like when someone said, Oh, I don't like that character because he wears that flag. I was like, Oh, hadn't thought of that, but I get it. You know? Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that he's not wearing it anymore, basically, is the bottom line. And I hope that he never wears it ever again. I don't think he will. Jason Kim wrote in with the header, Sunfire and the Legacy of Japanese Imperialism. Good day to our host and our Minister of Justice. To get straight to the point, the costume, the OG costume specifically. The tradition of the flag suit hero typically demands, at least in the stuff I've read, thinking of Captain America and Captain Britain here for X-related purposes, 
the interrogation of the nation in question, at least somewhat. With regards to Sunfire, the thing that keeps popping into mind for me is the colonization and exploitation of Korea, among other places, in the lead up to and during World War II. Is it not feasible to do this critique without going into Orientalist territory due to the lack of investment and history in Marvel Asia? Even if it were possible, is interrogating the legacy of imperialism via Sunfire even a good idea via stuff like Yasukuni Shrine? Or is that just too messy for superhero comics? I'll stop before I start repeating myself. Apologies for the thorny question and going long. Appreciate the show and community. Sincerely, Jason Kim. Jason, that was not going long. People write in questions to this podcast that are like 20 paragraphs, so do not even worry about it. What do you think about that? Because it's true that the flag suit character when written well, I've argued this on the podcast before, Captain America, Steve Rogers, is a character that I can love because his whole deal when written properly is taking America to task for the ways in which it is failing to live up to its stated ideals. Captain Britain is a character that certainly since the Alan Moore period and going up to the present in Teeny Howard's work, is about interrogating British Empire and the history of Britain and King Arthur and all of that mythic shit that was used to justify imperialism. What do you think about tackling that via Sunfire? Do you think it's possible? Do you think it's something that Marvel Comics should do? First of all, hi, Jason. Love seeing you in the Discord. Jason, I will say, I always really appreciate... Jason's been going through the older material, particularly the Madripoor stuff, and I always appreciate Jason's take on the Orientalism in these comics because it's something I intellectually understand, but, like, especially as a Betsy Braddock fan, it is just useful to me to hear from East Asian people about the ways that certain, like, arcs make them feel. Like, I just, I'm always grateful for that because no one has to share that. And I appreciate when people share their perspectives. That's why I always have guests on this show. It's important to me to have everybody's perspective recognized, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And if I can be, like, gushy for a little bit, again, that's one of the things that I really liked about the Discord, the fact that there are, you know, obviously lots of queer X-Men fans, and there are quite a few X-Fans of color as well, quite a few Asian X-Men fans as well. It's really nice to be able to talk about this stuff with but you are the first East Asian guest I've had, which I didn't realize until I looked Am at. I? Yeah, which is crazy. Me, Alex Abad Santos is Filipino, right? But that's Southeast. Vishal is Indian, and Vishal is Indian, so that's South right. Asian. I have not had, which is crazy, given the use of East Asia in this franchise. It is wild. But that's the thing: is you know, my brother-in-law is Chinese, and my sister has been very. It's been very eye-opening for her. Marrying a Chinese man, thinking about having half Chinese children, thinking about the way that anti-East Asian racism specifically operates and the way that it is very like low key. You don't think about it as much because it isn't something that's as widely discussed. And so when I was looking, I was like, is it possible that it's episode 68 and I have not had a Chinese, Japanese or Korean person on this show yet? And apparently, yeah. So I'm glad that we're having these conversations and I am I am just always grateful that people are willing to share their experiences with me and with my audience because the show, much to my surprise, has gotten pretty big. It sure has. So like, you know, I think it's valuable to bring different points of view to that. Yeah, I mean, like, that was definitely one of the first things that stood out to me when I listened to the Betsy Braddock episode. I was like, there is no way that this white man can get me to care about Betsy Braddock. 
but you did it. <laughs> Listen, I am a champion at getting people to care about Betsy Brack despite the 30 years of racist mess. No, like, like specifically, I, I God, was like, there's a great character here. I was like sort of bracing myself for like some Psylocke ninja nonsense. And then when you were like, yeah, that's that was really shitty what they did. I was like, yes, thank you. That is correct. There's a reason that was my first episode. Right. Because she's a character I love, and I wanted to be clear from the beginning of this podcast that I love this franchise, and I worship Chris Claremont, but I am also aware of the places in which this franchise falls in its face with regard to all kinds of issues, but race is a pretty big one, right? For sure. For sure. Um, I am not answering the question at all. Yeah, no, answer the question. Justin, for God's sake. Here's the thing, guys. Justin and I talk every day and have now for like almost two years. And we've never actually spoken. We've never actually spoken. We've never actually like spoken in this way. So we're kind of having fun with it. And you just have to bear with us a little bit. a lot of fun. It's like the episode with Khaled. It's like the dust episode. where like Khaled and I had never actually spoken. Which was crazy. Like Lou and Lewis I've known for years. But the rest of the mod team is people who are new to me. So it's always exciting to have one of you on my Zoom. Yeah. It's so weird that you're not just like a voice in my phone. (laughs) <laughs> no i'm a voice you're interacting with isn't that weird yeah exactly that's always mm-hmm. that's a weird thing you marked out when i did the welcome to cerebro the pot you know like i i, I sure I, did <laughs> like there's a face that makes that noise yeah weird. it's true exactly. all right the fucking question that i am not answering yes i will answer it okay should marvel tackle japanese imperialism directly through the character of shiro or would it be messy to do that given Marvel's own Orientalist history and lack of effort and attention paid to East Asia in Marvel Comics historically. I think they should. Perhaps this is a little bit idealistic of me, but I think there is a way for this character to be used in a way that explicitly denounces what people may have thought that he stood for based on the costume that he had been wearing for over half of his publication history. That would be really meaningful to me and hopefully to a lot of other readers. I think it would help free this character to continue being in other comics without so much baggage attached to him Mm -hmm. and hopefully lead to both him and other Asian characters having more prominence and more nuance to their stories overall. So I think there is a way to do that. I don't think you need to put him back in the costume to do that. Is what no, I, is the I big agree. Thing. Like I get why someone might think that they have to, but like at this point, he's worn the costume long enough that they can like flash back to it or something. I will say I thought Jerry's moment with him early in this X Men run because each character as it goes on is getting a moment where we flash back to the Hellfire Gala and what they said when they wanted to be nominated when they nominated themselves and then what helped them win. What Sunfire said was that he has served a country for many years and he has ultimately found it unsatisfying. Yeah, he says, it was not always my goal to use my powers for all mankind. By the time I realized I was born gifted, I had already lost much. I did what many do. I fought for my country. Then I fought for the X-Men. Later, I fought for the Avengers. I always wondered what it would get me, and I always ended up with an empty heart. I thought that was really good. To me, that's what I needed on some level from the character. was like, why do you do these things, and have you thought about them? Why have you changed your mind? You know, And I'm hoping we get more, 
before, you know, yes. we're only like seven issues in or whatever. Absolutely. Before the 12 issues with this team finishes out, I hope that we get a little bit more on that. I've talked to Jerry offline about this character, and I know that Jerry is very interested in him. So yeah. I'm hoping that we will get more soon. I really appreciate what's been done with him so far in this current X-Men run, particularly the speech, like you mentioned. Uh, I will admit, I think my first reaction, my instinctive reaction when I read this comic was not as favorable, only because at that point, the main exposure that I had to Shiro in the comics was his original X-Men number 64 comic, Mm -hmm. the one that I had read. And I was like, oh, people have been telling me that this character is like a racist nationalist, basically, because he wears this flag costume. And then when I read it, I was like, is he? So then when I read this speech, particularly the part where he says, I fought for my country, it felt a little bit like he was sort of accepting a burden that the narrative had put on him that he didn't necessarily have to kind of agreeing like, yeah, I did fight for my country when like in that very first story, like he doesn't really like he has a very personal grudge. Right. And like, there's all that shit with his uncle that we'll get into. Yeah. But then there is a period in the eighties and nineties where he is like the primary Captain America superhero of Japan. Mm -hmm. And to me, like it reminds me a little bit of, I think you've talked about this on previous episodes like wiki drift almost where like yeah. a character or or like a writer or a reader will see some or like see something on a wiki sunfire is a nationalist because people have told me that sunfire is a nationalist. exactly like if you read the original x-men number 64 there's like a surprising amount of nuance in there he's pissed about hiroshima which makes perfect exactly. sense to me yeah and then like we can get into more detail later but like even in like the submariner and the iron man comic season there's like an arc of him sort of like moving past this period in his life. But then you sort of get like, he sort of gets continually reset almost because you always get mm-hmm. writers coming on and they're like, oh, here's Sunfire. He's the nationalist. Right. And then like, then that ends up getting put in the print and then someone else reads that. And then they're like, of course he's a nationalist. It says so right there. There's the like comic. 50 comics where I've seen exactly. this characterization. Right. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. very few people, especially before it was all very well collected, before you could read digitally, before exactly. things were, you know, the idea of going back to the original Roy Thomas story and reading what he says is mm-hmm. not something that anybody and like no offense to bill everett but like who the fuck is reading submariner number 52 to 54 you know no one and like <laughs> and no disrespect to bill no disrespect exactly. but like yeah actually so there's one more email on this score before i think we should get into the character file sure because this is a japanese american perspective which i think okay. is important also patrick matsutani writes hello connor and esteemed justin Sunfire was the first X-Men character I was obsessed with as a little Japanese kid because he was the only Japanese good guy I knew of in American media who wasn't a ninja or a samurai or some other weird bullshit. But I was violently disillusioned when I started actually reading comics as an adult and realized he was a hyper-nationalist wearing the imperial flag. I think Sunfire has the same problem many Japanese characters created by white writers do. They're Orientalist caricatures rather than full characters with any grounding in reality. I don't know any Japanese people like Sunfire because there is no Yakuza clan with ninjas and samurai codes of honor. Or any Japanese nationalist who is an insane xenophobic racist fascist. I'm interested in seeing where Jerry Duggan goes with Faylong and Sunfire. And I think ultimately disconnecting Sunfire from his Orientalist origins will help him actually develop as a character. 
I think the nationalist part of his character is an interesting facet, but not one that's easy to explore without getting extremely political with a character who was just plucked from relative obscurity in the first place. However, a part of me does think that in order for him to thrive, that part of his character does need to be exercised on panel, but I think it would need an Asian writer. What do you think? Is it possible, or is an American comic company talking real international politics on the page a bridge too far? Much love to you both. It's been great to talk to you on the Discord, and thank you, as always, for the podcast, Lisa Barlow Hive Rise. Well, I need to specify. <laughs> uh, While Lisa Barlow, I, mm-hmm. just, I need to say it. If any Real Housewives of Salt Lake City are listening right now, Lisa Barlow is an iconic reality television personality. However, I am cross with her at the moment because Meredith Marks is my queen. And I am very upset about that hot mic rant that Lisa went on. However, it was iconic television. It was absolutely incredible reality TV. But my heart hurts for Meredith. Here's the thing. I love that these two Jewish queens are dominating this show, and I hope that the war that is about to erupt between them continues for the next 30 years. So I hear you. I don't think I'm quite Lisa Barlow Hive just because I am kind of Meredith Hive, but I appreciate them both as characters. But let's get into the question. (laughs) I was just like, you can't end on a Lisa Barlow note. Yeah, I feel like I want to know when this email was sent because I feel pretty like recently, the hot mic stuff is... but it was before the hot mic. It was before the hot okay. mic. Okay, all right. Well, you know, but we'll the Patrick hot mic was in the coming soon. <laughs> the like, oh, gotcha, gotcha. I fucking hate Meredith. She's a whore. She fucked half of New York. I fucking hate her. Like that was in the previews. So, I'm like, behind on season two, stuff. but that was insanely accurate as a voice impression. I mean, I've been forced to learn, like not forced, but like I've seen enough people talking about it that I've sort of been following along. I'm done with her. She's so fake. Her fake family that just poses. (laughs) Why don't you own a house, Meredith? It's really rough. It's a rough watch. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Meredith saw it for the first time right before the reunion. So I think the reunion <laughs> is going to be epic. But anyway, if you're I not really watching Real Houses in Salt Lake City, that's a you yeah. problem, listeners. So just letting you know, that show is peak Housewives and is fully insane. And you should pick it up. We're only in season two. Anyway, to get back to the question, Patrick Matsutani writes in with a good point, which is that, like, and I related to this letter very specifically because I have very complicated feelings about Sabra. Did you know that Sabra and Sunfire are in a comic together? I did. I did know that. I have very little to say about it, but... It's not a notable comic, but they're very parallel characters in a lot of ways because they are mutants who have chosen their nation of origin historically over the mutant race. And I think that that is a thing that makes them fraught. What's different about Sunfire that Patrick points out is that white people created Sunfire, whereas Sabra had Jewish creator input. You know what I mean? Like Peter David did a lot of the development of Sabra. Sabra is a character who, as a Jew, I don't identify with because I'm not a Zionist. So, like, there is a lot of complicated stuff there, right? Similarly, if you are a Japanese person who doesn't believe in Japanese nationalism, I imagine Sunfire is a fraught character. Do you think it's something that can be dealt with on panel? And if so, how do you think it should be dealt with? So short answer, yes. I do think, like, again, perhaps this is a little bit idealistic of me, and I do agree that it should be... Well, I'd love to write something cool with Sabra, but I also would be terrified to do it. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And I think that is a large part of the reason why Asian 
creators have not. I mean, like, obviously part of it is, you know, like, opportunities for Asian creators are, you know, improving, but still not quite there. Right. I'm very excited about Alyssa Wong joining the X office, yes, by the way. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't want to, like, pigeonhole her or anything. No, I don't know what she's writing. I'm just saying I've known Alyssa for many years from my day job. Incredible writer. I am just really excited to have her in the room, and I'm glad that we have an Asian writer in the room now absolutely. also. I think that as many perspectives as we can get in the room, that's what you want. Absolutely. In terms of dealing with Shiro's nationalism, and his nationalist past, I suppose. I think this is where it does get really important to think about whether or not we're talking about Shiro as like a person who has agency and makes decisions, and Shiro as a fictional character whose decisions Mm. are largely controlled, as Patrick points out, by like white creators and writers. The issue is that he's sort of often stated to be a nationalist without really interrogating what that means. Like, there aren't really discussions of Japanese politics on page. No, because most Americans don't know anything about Japanese Yeah, politics. like, Shiro is not on page going, like, chiming in on, like, the dispute about the Leanne Court Rocks or, like, anything like that. And frankly, when he appeared in the Claremont stories, he was a supporting character to Mariko because Claremont cared about Mariko, not about He sure did. And I I gotta say, Mariko Yoshida, Mariko Yoshida, great character. Oh, I fucking love Mariko, yeah. But the thing is, much like Annie Nascenti saying on this podcast that she had to remind Chris sometimes, like, Colossus has to do something. I think that similarly, <laughs> Sunfire was set dressing for the Mariko and Logan story that was mostly about Mariko because that was the character that Claremont was interested in. Mm-hmm. So all this to say, like, because the sort of idea that Chiro is a nationalist is kind of taken at face value and kind of just like almost peppered in there as, like you said, set dressing without really interrogating what that means, it is both easy and difficult to denounce that. One of the reasons why it's difficult to do this is that Shiro is specifically a Japanese character, not really a Japanese-American character. Mm, so, yeah. like, he would care and be interested in mainland... I mean, it's an island, so I don't know if they really call it that. But, but like, you, you actual... Get what, I get what you mean. <laughs> like, actual homeland Japanese politics that I don't know that a lot of writers are super knowledgeable about and that I don't know that a lot of readers are super knowledgeable about. Which Mm -hmm. is why it makes it difficult. Like, I can see why someone would be hesitant to, like, have him talk about real-world politics. That being said, most of the unfortunate associations that he has are very historical. So I do think that those particular aspects are worth exploring on panel. The Fei Long bit really stood out to me, because especially after having read all of these other issues... Shiro's nationalism, because it's written by mostly white writers, is framed in like a very U.S.-Japan relationship. Like it's very much confined to the U.S.-Japan relationship. Right. The comic doesn't care about Japan and the Philippines or about Japan and Korea or about Japan and China because that's Mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. relevant to the assumed readership. Yeah, exactly. They talk about Pearl Harbor and they talk about the bombing of Hiroshima. Like those are the two events as far as these comics are concerned. The only two events that happened in Asia during World War II. Right. In like the history of Japan, really. Exactly. (laughs) Like that and samurai. Like that's it. Mm -hmm, There's mm -hmm. nothing else. Yeah. So because of that, like Shiro's nationalism is framed very much in the context of Japan losing the war. Right. Like Shiro Mm -hmm. being a nationalist is treated as him sort of being like a sore loser almost. Or even, like, 
an underdog almost like the big bad americans are like stomping on this like japanese rebel or whatever and they do a decent job of moving past that it can get a little bit after school special sometimes but there are comics where shiro sort of talks about like no longer having the anti-american views that he's had in the past mm-hmm the issue is that completely removes other Asian people from the conversation. So in a way, when the comic sort of presents him as like moving past the Imperial Japan associations, because they've never really dealt with the occupation of Korea, comfort women, forced laborers, like... All of the shit that they did to other Asian people is not something that the comics ever dealt with. Yeah, it's just a very different power dynamic than the U.S.-Japan relationship, especially because in the 70s and the 80s, like, Japan was, like, super dependent on the United States economically, right? Like, they were mm-hmm. being rebuilt after the war. Yes. They were basically being used, you know, like, the Cold War was Deprived of having their own military because of their loss in the war, which is a big part of Sunfire's ongoing story. Exactly, exactly. And you look at stuff like the way that, like, the island of Okinawa was treated by the American military. Like, yeah, there's all sorts of yeah. shit going on. and. In a way, they sort of have to... And we occupied the Philippines. I mean, like, there's all kinds of... Before Japan, like, like, America's hands are dirty in all of this, too. So it's much easier to tell the story in a Japan versus America way without getting into all of the other people that both those countries have oppressed and colonized in various ways. And I think in a way that is one of the ways to kind of move past the Orientalism, because the way that it's framed right now because it is sort of like a U.S. versus Japan dynamic, the treatment of Sunfire's nationalist views are done in a way that like villainizes Japan and Japanese people writ large, but not in a way that is super specific to Japan and ends up bordering closer to just like general anti-Asian racism and Orientalism, like all the Mm -hmm. Yellow Peril stuff. They talk about how he's like duplicitous and traitorous and they talk about right. like, his dual loyalties. And like, those are all things that, especially as someone who grew up in North America, those are things that have you empathizing with the way that these characters are treated on page. Mm-hmm. So I think that one way to move past that is, like Patrick said, having Asian writers do it. I do think that there still is some work that needs to be done before the character can, as you said, thrive. Like, I don't think it should ever be completely forgotten, is the difficult balance. But at the same time, like, I want this character to continue existing. I want to be able to enjoy the comics that he's in. I want to be able to enjoy the character. I think that the costume change is a great first step. I similarly think that the new costume Betsy's wearing in Knights of X that is less overtly a Union Jack is a good thing. I think the fact that Captain America doesn't really wear an American flag is also helpful. And so I think that when you remove the very explicit flag iconography from these characters to some extent, that helps with this dilemma. Ultimately, I'm hopeful for the character. And like I said, I do want to like him. We are getting closer there. And like, oh, sorry, one thing that I forgot to mention is the interaction between Phalong and Sunfire that Patrick mentioned in the question mm. really stood out to me in X-Men number six, because it is one of the first times that like the history of a country other than United States and Japan in World War II is like even acknowledged 
is even a factor, right? Yeah, it's not like super drawn out. I think he basically just mentions that like Japan and China have fought each other in the past. But Mm -hmm. even that like little touch to show to emphasize like that Asia or East Asia is not a monolith. Like one helps to avoid the Orientalism because it doesn't create this sort of like broad brush of like, oh, Sunfire being a nationalist or Japanese nationalist is just part of like general kind of this is just the asian people exactly yeah yeah when in fact there's thousands of years of history between these different countries of of history yeah so little things like that i think it sounds counterintuitive almost like have him talk to other asian people to avoid like the orientalism um but that makes sense because then it's not about white subjectivity exactly yeah well, I think now is a good time for us to get into the Cerebro character file on Shiro Yoshida, Sunfire. I will take you through his complete publication history from X-Men 64 by Roy Thomas and Don Heck up through the current Jerry Duggan and Pepe Larath era on X-Men. Then we will return for more with Justin Park. We will talk about all the Sunfire stories that are worth talking about. Honestly, there aren't that many of them, but we'll go through them. Then we will answer more questions from listeners like you. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. And now, Miss Candy Southern and me, your host, with a message from our sponsors. Long time no see, beautiful boys and groovy gals. The summer's just beginning, and I, for one... (laughs) Oh my, that one was a whopper. What's the matter, Candy? Sorry, Connor, old sport. My allergies are just the pits this year. I'm afraid any ad for me is going to sound like it was recorded underwater. Have you tried Astapro over-the-counter nasal spray? It's the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray and starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray, delivering full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny itchy nose, and sneezing. I've had terrible allergies this year, which is a bummer when you record a podcast for a living, but Astapro has kept me sounding crystal clear. It's got your back and your nose. And thank heavens for that. If you've got allergies like me and Candy, get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. X-Men, X-Men. Shiro Yoshida, better known by the codename Sunfire, is among Marvel's longest-running mutant characters. Created by Roy Thomas and Don Heck, Shiro is a young Japanese man who channels the rage of his nation after the American nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He's briefly an antagonist to the X-Men, shortly before the book's cancellation, and then becomes a national hero of Japan, making guest appearances in various titles. With an extremely brief tenure as one of the second Genesis X-Men in 1975's iconic Giant Size X-Men number one, which relaunched the title, Sunfire holds a place of pride in the history of the franchise, but has never quite managed a rise to the X-Men A-list. Shiro debuts in 1970's X-Men 64, where he's presented as the son of Saburo Yoshida, Japan's ambassador to the United Nations. His mother, a victim of radiation poisoning at Hiroshima, died giving birth to him, and with his father's career serving as a distraction, he's mostly been raised by his uncle Tomo. Tomo is secretly a zealous Japanese nationalist who hates America, and grooms Shiro into a weapon to use against the United States. Suspecting the boy is a latent mutant, he takes Shiro to Hiroshima, where the radiation still present in the earth catalyzes a power over so-called atomic fire. 
When Shiro's father invites them to visit him in America, Shiro, now Sunfire, dressed in a costume based on the flag of the Japanese Imperial military, first disrupts proceedings at the UN and then travels south to attack the US Capitol. Shiro's father figures out Sunfire's identity and attempts to reason with him, leading Uncle Tomo to execute his brother with a gunshot. Horrified and enraged, Shiro murders his uncle in turn with a blast of nuclear flame. X-Men was canceled with issue 66, but Shiro's story resumes two years later in another title, Submariner by Bill Everett and Mike Friedrich, where we see he's become a homeless vagrant after dishonoring his family name. Manipulated by a criminal called the Dragon Lord, Shiro holds ships hostage, attempting to blackmail the United States into ending its military occupation of Japan. He's stopped by Namor the Submariner, who helps Shiro understand that the Dragon Lord is bent on conquest and destruction, and the pollution of the sea. Turning on his new master, Shiro becomes a hero. By the time he next appears, in 1973's Avengers 117 by Steve Englehart and Bob Brown, he's become Japan's official national hero in the vein of Captain America. The following year, he appears in a three-issue arc in Iron Man, written by Mike Friedrich and drawn by George Tuska, in which he travels to Vietnam to aid in relief work. While there, he makes a deal with the Vietnamese military to attack Iron Man in exchange for favors to the Japanese government. While battling Iron Man, he's kidnapped by the villain the Mandarin, and ends up rescued by Iron Man much to his embarrassment. He returns to the world of X in 1975, as the world of X returns. In Len Wein and Dave Cockrum's Giant Size X-Men No. 1, a relaunch of the franchise, Shiro is one of the mutants tapped by Charles Xavier to form a new team and rescue the 60s X-Men from the living island Krakoa. Shiro aids in this mission, but promptly quits the team the next day, telling Xavier not to bother him again. Two years later, he turns up for another arc of Iron Man, this one written by Bill Mantlo. When Tony Stark is accused of bribing the Japanese government, Shiro attacks Stark International. The bad guy is, yet again, the Mandarin. Shiro is basically always tricked by a bad guy into fighting other heroes. It's his whole deal. Two years after that, in 1979, Shiro returns to X-Men in an arc from issues 118 to 120. Here his name is given as Shiro Yashida, with an A, and he's presented as the cousin of Wolverine's love interest Mariko Yashida, who will later be revealed as the heiress to the Yashida crime family, a prominent Yakuza clan, and half-sister of the villain called the Silver Samurai. The spelling of Shiro's name reverts to Yoshida in later appearances, so the difference in surnames between the cousins is something of a continuity glitch that stuck. In any case, the X-Men are stranded in Japan after an adventure in the Savage Land and ask Shiro for help, but he refuses. As always, Shiro's bravado is overcome by the need for teamwork and friendship, as the X-Men help him battle the evil Moses Magnum. Magnum's threatening to sink the entirety of Japan into the sea, and it's only through the near-fatal sacrifice of the X-Men Banshee that Magnum is stopped. Now impressed with the X-Men, Shiro tells them he would be honored to fight with them again. Then he's in Contest of Champions, and this is not a Contest of Champions podcast. He fights Darkstar, don't worry about it. Anyway, he returns to Uncanny X-Men with issue 181, five years after his previous appearance. He helps the X-Men fight a dragon from another dimension that is threatening Tokyo, and we see that he chafes under the clan leadership of his cousin Mariko, who now leads the Yashida family after the death of her father. This is the last appearance of Sunfire in the Claremont run. Six years later, he pops up in 1990's Deathlock by Dwayne McDuffie, Gregory Wright, and Dennis Cowan, where he's yet again manipulated by an older criminal into trying to start a war on behalf of Japanese imperialism. At the same time, he appears in an arc of New Mutants by Rob Liefeld and Fabian Niciesa, in which he teams up with the New Mutants to stop the Mutant Liberation Front's narcotics trafficking in Madripoor. He battles the MLF member Dragoness, a villainess whose mutant powers also derive from a mother irradiated in the bombing of Hiroshima. In this story, it's revealed Shiro's father had a long-standing acquaintanceship with Cable, the New Mutants' new leader, which in hindsight is a time travel wrinkle for Cable that I have no idea how to explain. 
After another adventure with his old frenemy Namor in Avengers West Coast, Sunfire returns to X-Men Comics in 1992's Uncanny X-Men 284 by John Byrne and Wils Portacio. Boasting a new costume for the first time in 22 years, Shiro tests a new set of powered armor by doing a nuclear experiment on territory between Russia and Japan. He accidentally opens a warp to another dimension and teams up with the X-Men when they're sucked inside it. Meeting Mikhail Rasputin, a prisoner of the warp who is also the long-lost thought-dead brother of the X-Man Colossus, Shiro joins his powers with Mikhail's and Iceman's to get everyone back to Earth and seal the void behind them. A few months later, he turns up in the Wolverine solo, now written by Larry Hama, where Logan ends up in the middle of a gang war between Clan Yoshida and the crime syndicate known as The Hand. The Hand's leader, Matsuo Suriyaba, has Mariko poisoned, leaving Logan devastated and Clan Yashida without a leader. It's Shiro who has to ask Logan to leave Japan immediately, as the government fears what he will do to avenge Mariko's murder. A year later, Shiro turns up in two stories nearly simultaneously that don't quite link up. In one of them, Namor the Submariner 45 by Glenn Hurdling and Jeff Isherwood, Namor teaches Shiro and some Japanese sailors that whaling is wrong. That's it, really. Meanwhile, over in the X-Men event Fatal Attractions, Magneto releases a global EMP wave that disrupts Shiro's powers as he flies above Tokyo. We don't get any real resolution until three years later, in the 1996 Wolverine Annual by Jeff Loeb, Ralph Macchio, and Ed McGuinness. Here we learn that Shiro's nuclear mutation went into overload due to the EMP wave, and the Japanese government decided to inhibit his powers and imprison him as a potential threat. He's rescued by Logan and the Silver Samurai, Mariko's half-brother, who is now leading Clan Yoshida. This leads into a new volume of Alpha Flight, written by Steve Siegel, in which Logan suggests Shiro, now on the run from the Japanese government, contact Department H in Canada to help him stabilize his power. Unfortunately, Department H is outrageously evil, and Shiro actually becomes a medical experiment. His radiation poisoning is allowed to develop until it starts blackening his flesh, and eventually he breaks free and flies off to Japan so that he can die in his homeland. He then appears in the three-issue miniseries Sunfire and Big Hero 6, written by Scott Lobdell, in which a dying Shiro is approached to join Japan's official superhero team, Big Hero 6. After some stuff you don't need to worry about, Shiro's power is stabilized, and the evil department H experiment fails, or whatever. When he goes back to Canada to see what the fuck all that was about, he learns Alpha Flight had uncovered the evil mad scientist who was doing all the bad stuff, which, fine. A year later, Shiro factors into the franchise-wide X-Men event, The Twelve, in which he is revealed to be one of the titular Twelve, and is kidnapped by Apocalypse, who hopes to use the power of the Twelve to become omnipotent. Apocalypse obviously does not succeed. Shiro gets a spotlight in X-Men Unlimited 34, in a story called Underworld by Stephen Grant and Trevor Von Eden. In this flashback to the 70s stories, Shiro tries to save his cousin Yoshi, who's a drug addict in debt to a kingpin, but while he destroys the drug ring, Shiro is unable to prevent his cousin from suffering a fatal overdose. In the 2002 one-shot Weapon X The Draft, Wild Child, Sabretooth and Wild Child approach Shiro at his family's estate and try to force him to join the Weapon X project. When he refuses and fights back, Wild Child shoots him three times. Like, with a gun. Then they leave him there to die. Don't worry about it, because clearly Grant Morrison didn't. Two months later, Shiro appears in Morrison's new X-Men as part of the Mumbai branch of X-Corporation, a global mutant rights initiative. But he's back to working for the Japanese government again a year later, when he has a dispute with Storm in X-Men Unlimited 39. He continues to protect Japan two years later in a 2005 arc of Marvel Team-Up. That same year, he has his first major role in quite some time, in the pages of the Rogue solo series by Tony Bedard and Carl Moline. Flashbacks establish in a retcon that Shiro and Rogue had a history together when Shiro was working for his evil uncle Tomo and Rogue was working for the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. When a scheme to steal adamantium went awry and Lady Deathstrike hunted down the team as a result, their compatriot Blindspot, a mutant with memory-altering powers, erased everyone else's memories of the event. 
In the present, Lady Deathstrike leaks photos to the press of Shiro and Rogue doing terrorism with Mystique. Shiro is distressed that he can't remember the events in the pictures and feels he's irreparably damaged his family honor. So, of course, he decides to commit ritual seppuku. That's when Rogue calls him on the phone because she's also confused about the pictures and she convinces him to team up with her instead of killing himself. In their confrontation with Lady Deathstrike, Shiro gets overconfident and pays for it. Deathstrike chops his legs off with her adamantium claws, just shears him straight off. Dying, Shiro insists that Rogue take his powers and use them to get revenge and escape. Rogue unintentionally absorbs him permanently due to blind spots interference, and when she comes back for him, Shiro's corpse has disappeared. A year later, following the decimation, in which all but about 200 mutants worldwide are depowered by the Scarlet Witch, we learn what became of Shiro, who's alive but has been depowered. He was actually rescued during the Rogue solo by some ninjas? Unclear. And has been recovering in Colorado for some reason, where the immortal mutant Apocalypse finds him. Apocalypse offers to restore Shiro's legs and his mutant powers, provided that Shiro become his new horseman of famine. Shiro accepts and is basically just a bad guy for a while. He gets a cool new design that looks just like his Age of Apocalypse design from the 90s. When the horsemen attack the X-Men, Emma Frost is able to unlock Shiro's mind and free him from Apocalypse's brainwashing. Shiro helps the X-Men, but then disappears with Gambit, who had been turned into the Horseman of Death. He takes Gambit to a temple in Japan, where they hang out and scheme to rescue the other surviving horsemen, Polaris, who had been Pestilence and is now at the Xavier Mansion with the X-Men. They attack, but Polaris doesn't want to go with them, which is pretty embarrassing for them. When they get back to Japan, they're met by Mr. Sinister, who makes them an offer they can't refuse. As the franchise-wide event Messiah Complex takes off, and the first mutant baby is born since M-Day, Sunfire and Gambit are among the new team of marauders who try to seize the child from the X-Men. Sure is pretty evil here, unclear if he's still brainwashed by Apocalypse, or like, what, exactly. But he and Gambit attack Cable and apparently kill him. In the end, though, Cable succeeds in escaping with Baby Hope to the future. Without any real explanation, Shiro is basically back to normal by 2013's Uncanny Avengers, though his shame over his villainous actions has again led him to become a homeless drunken vagrant in Tokyo. Logan tracks him down and convinces him to get his shit together again and join the new Avengers Unity Division for mutant rights or whatever. I don't like this book, guys. After a whole thing with the Apocalypse Twins, don't worry about it, please. Shiro gets turned into a being of pure energy held together by a special costume, and eventually he departs the Avengers. He's all back to normal in time for 2016's Death of X, in which he makes a heroic effort to help protect mutant kind from the lethal Mpox. But we don't talk about Inhumans vs. X-Men on this podcast. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Shiro is one of countless mutants to become a citizen of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. After defending Krakoa with his life during the King in Black company-wide event, Shiro nominated himself for the first Krakoan X-Men team at the 2021 Hellfire Gala. Elected to the team by a vote of all mutant kind, Sunfire now serves as a regular cast member in Jerry Duggan and Pepe Larat's current run on X-Men, where he's donned a snazzy new costume and rejected the nationalist symbols of his past, putting aside country in order to serve a global community. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. We just realized we haven't even talked yet about how Sunfire should be a fucking faggot. He's literally flaming. Sunfire should be gay. Sunfire should be so fucking gay, guys. Sunfire has never had a love interest. And if he has one, he should be a man. He's gay. He is gay. They should just say it. They should just say it. Shout out Disney if you're listening. If the overlords in the floating space palace at Disneyopolis are listening, Sunfire should be gay should be gay as hell. We will get into that in the questions later on. But Justin was like, we have been talking for an hour and a half and I haven't even gotten into my gay Sunfire agenda yet. And I was like, I am so sorry. We had to tackle all of the like racist flag stuff, but now 
We're good. I think we we've sure done that. did have to tackle. I think the... we did that. I hope so. You did that. You did that, girl. Like yes, tackle I that flag. Honor. Um. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. You I know just what? know how nervous we're. Justin, just during the break, Justin set aside his copious notes and was like, "I'm just gonna relax." And I'm like, "Thank you. Let's just vibe." Because Justin is the kind of person who brings copious notes, and I love that energy. But now we're just gonna talk about comic books. We are going to talk about comic books. Let's go chronologically and talk about the Sunfire stories you like. The first story we've talked about, he's tricked by his evil uncle into believing all sorts of things. His good dad, who believes in building a bridge with America, is killed by the evil uncle. And Shiro turns on the uncle and is like, no, and, you know, is the hero now or whatever. That's sort of the vibe of that first story. But then the book gets canceled, so he, like, doesn't come back, is the thing, you know? It sure does. It is extremely funny that Sunfire's first line ever in a comic book is, Ants! That is a complete sentence. He goes on to be like, this is a land of ants, of smog and smirking insects, but that is the first word that he ever says, which is fucking hilarious. It is kind of how he regards other people, you know? Yeah, like, and that's the part that does start to get into some Orientalism. Like, he does kind of talk like just, you know, a stereotypical Asian character. He's He talks about honor. He talks about and like, foreign dogs. Like, there's he a lot sure of that. says <laughs> your gaijin lover he's always mad at mariko for being in love with a white man who's like Mm -hmm, a white mm -hmm. man who's a samurai probably projecting but maybe that's me projecting on him projecting so but like also if i were shiro i might find logan's i'm a samurai now thing like kind of fucking irritating oh absolutely yeah like basically Mariko is Koyuki in Last Samurai and mm-hmm. Logan is Tom Cruise and I understand why Shiro might be a little annoyed by that but yeah, over no, time absolutely. he starts to really like Logan because Logan does exemplify a lot of these values which is again like a little I have a whole thing about That's Shiro why people Logan. writing this who yeah. think it's But cool, he's not even know, in this one. We're he's not, not even in this not, one. He's not, not doesn't exist yet. He doesn't even yeah, exist exactly. yet. No, 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 it's mm-hmm. fine. Like pushing him out right now of this Asian yeah. man's No, face. I totally agree though. Like there is definitely like the dichotomy between the father and the uncle. There's like the father who's like super self-sacrificing in a way that is a little bit uncomfortable. At one point he's like if this unworthy person could borrow a glass of water He's talking about himself because like that's how Asian people talk. They're either like super mad about America or they are always bowing and apologizing for everything. There's just those are the two options. Right. But like we talked about a little bit earlier, there is like a surprising amount of depth in this comic, especially for 1970. Right. Like, yeah, the fact that he has feelings at all about the nuclear bomb. Well, the way that he gets his powers, I think, is really interesting because, again, Mm -hmm. this is the late 60s period where they hadn't quite codified how mutant powers work. And so much like Lorna, who had been introduced a handful of issues earlier, Mm -hmm. he's a latent mutant whose power has to be triggered when he's an adult. And the way that it's triggered, Lorna gets put in a machine by Mesmero that, like, activates her powers. In this case... Evil Uncle Tomo takes him to Hiroshima. Which is still in ruins, even though, like, a lot of it probably should have been yeah, rebuilt by well, that point. But it's a specific part that, like, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. At this point in America, even we were seeing like the pictures. Of, right. We, I say, I wasn't alive yet, but you get what I'm saying. Like the pictures of the shadows of people burned into the walls and things. Like Absolutely. it was understood that this was a site that was still radioactive and fucked up in places. So like Tomo takes him to a spot that's like particularly radioactive and has him touch the soil and touching the irradiated earth of his homeland is what catalyzes Shiro's power. And it gives him nuclear power. I mean, it gives him an atomic power. Which like atomic fire, I don't think that really means anything, but like whatever, it's comic. No, and he always calls it (laughs) solar fire because like like, the the rising sun Japanese atomic samurai. And then I just picture like a tiny little atom sized samurai, like with a little sword running around. He loves to call himself the atomic samurai. Yeah. But again, that's where it gets into like technically the white writers like to make him call himself the atomic samurai. Well, right. Yeah, exactly. But it is him taking the weapon that America used against him that killed his mother and turning it into a source of strength, which is very X-Men, even in this early period. For sure. And it did actually remind me a little bit of when you were talking about magic and the way that her powers, or Ileana, and the way that her Mm -hmm. powers manifested. Like, she has such a weirdly specific power of, like, limbo stepping circles or whatever. Right, because she was there, right? Exactly. And similarly, he catalyzes on the ground of Hiroshima so of course his power is atomic right exactly there's almost that chicken egg thing to it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the other thing that's really important about this comic like almost as though it was like predicting the flag discourse years in advance is that like his uncle is the one that gives him the suit yes he says when you strike at last you must wear our ancient colors and be known as sunfire and it's like that's some orientalist nonsense but it is like okay there is a world in which he didn't really understand what he was wearing. Not that it's like an excuse necessarily. And there are hard right fascist nationalists in Japan and certainly were at the time. So the idea that his uncle is this kind of person is not that crazy. Yeah, it does sort of like shift the blame onto him in a way that is a little bit, I guess, problematic in that like now his uncle is like the super far right Japanese nationalist who like based on the time period probably was like a military Like literally in the, right, that's the thing. Yeah, but like Sunfire is explicitly born after, like years after the war ends. Yes. Which I think is a really like key detail that is established super early but like it seems like a lot of people kind of forget about like they think almost that he was part of that he was in the army exactly there was no army by the time that he was born like the 60s x-men he is born in the shadow of world war ii the nuclear ending to that war is what catalyzes all of these people he's about the same age as the o5 that is a really important part as well because I mean, part of this is just like the way that Asian characters are drawn a lot of the time is kind of weirdly ageless. Like they're either super old, like Uncle Iroh and Avatar the Last Airbender with like the long white beard, or they're just sort of like generically ageless. Eternally 20, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And for a long time, I like didn't quite understand because like i had been reading modern comics or whatever right but like he and scott and gene should be about the same age exactly and like i don't want to get into the details but like yeah we don't have to get an age discourse but but like at this specific point in time we are lucky enough to know that his mother gave birth to him a few years after the bombing this comic came out in 1970 so he is like 
25 years old max max and i think younger yeah exactly yeah he's college age like the 60s x-men are by Mm -hmm. this point in the story Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so he's like a young kid who's been taught a lot of really problematic shit with it by his uncle you can see sort of the roots of what could have been a really great story arc especially when we get into like sort of the follow-up stories in like Submariner and Iron Man or whatever mm-hmm. even from the beginning there are roots in his story that point to him very quickly realizing that this ultranationalist Japan bullshit that he's been spouting that was taught to him by his uncle like is not correct like even in the middle of the comic he has a moment where he's like his uncle is like massaging his shoulders which like yikes and then he's like yet even in the heat of battle it all seems somehow wrong like he's questioning these things still right right and i think that's important to acknowledge for his character also real quick there is a funny line where like warren is spying on him and he's talking about how like this is shiro yoshida there was a spread on him in last week's life in case you were wondering genie because warren (laughs) loves to read magazines you know yeah famous warren of we're what people magazine call an item fame exactly Uh, (laughs) he wants to keep tabs on the beaumont international baby Mm -hmm. it is funny to think of shiro as like a young diplomat socialite in like that's what i'm saying is there is something to that that's interesting is that like he like mariko is actually a socialite and he would have even been on a more global stage because his father was an ambassador. He's not unlike Monet, actually. It's a very similar background as to what's given to Monet later on. And the other thing, so like obviously there's all the shit with his uncle teaching him the racist shit. There's the fact that his mother, he never knew because she died in childbirth, it's pretty much said. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, there's the fact that his father has basically spent his entire life, like Shiro's entire life, working to repair relations with with, america yeah and that's like its own layer of like yeah you would resent america if it's like theoretically kind of taking your father away from you and killed your mother exactly yeah so there's a lot of really interesting stuff there and he's like i can't decide there's a so there's the the moment that's really he he goes please my father your words make my head spin in confusion do not make me choose between two men i know and he is talking about his uncle and his father and his dad to be clear clear. but then his father says yes choose my son and choose now and then uncle tomo goes i shall make the choice for you and shoots his brother in the face this is crack and then shiro goes father yeah, and, and this is Shiro is like, oh, maybe this guy is like not a super great role model after all. And it's like, well. But nothing can stop the limp form which topples from the high balcony. And so then Shiro fucking kills his uncle. Yeah. To avenge his Very dad. Very quick, like not even looking at him. He just kind of. No, it's just like, you know what? Like, Never mind. You're fucking dead mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. I was wrong. And it's like kind of devastating. Like he loses his dad. He loses, he loses his, his uncle, whole who family. Is like, yeah, who is like terrible, but it, he like did raise him. Right. And then so it's not super explicit in this comic, but like he gets arrested and deported. Yes. (laughs) And the X-Men are standing there watching and they're like they're like they somehow know about the backstory where his mom. was Because they're in they're in America here. So he gets arrested and deported back to Japan. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're in Washington, D.C. Yeah. So like the X-Men are standing there watching him cry over the body of his dead father. And he's and Gene says, we may as well go. There's nothing more we can do. And it's like, <laughs> come on. 
come on, guys. That's very like, gene. This is a mutant. And, like, Warren is like, if only we could have reasoned with him, reached him in time somehow. He's standing right, he's like, he's kneeling right there. Scott says, maybe the next one, which there isn't going to be a next one, the book gets fucking cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> but they just walk away, and, like, that's the end of his story in this arc. And it's like, I really want to know what could have happened if they were just like, fuck it, we are taking this guy with us, not letting him get arrested and deported back to his home country where he no longer, I mean, like, I guess he has family. But you know what I mean, right? Like, yeah, like they let fucking mimic Calvin Rankin join the team, but Chiro just gets arrested and deported. I do think that if the comic had continued... <laughs> Absolutely. Because clearly he was still front of mind when they did Giant Size, right? Absolutely, yeah. Was Roy Thomas editor-in-chief at that point? Yes. Yeah, so like, and like he was clearly attached to the character. It was Roy Thomas who specifically said that the new X-Men team should be international. Mm-hmm. And we absolutely appreciate that effort, Roy, if you're listening. Yeah, I mean, listen, Roy, if you're there, come on the pod. Yeah, know. Cobalt Man episode twenty. Yeah, let's talk about the fucking Cobalt Man. <laughs> Wait, no, I think you got to do like a three for one and do like factor three. Oh, that Roy Thomas. Roy Thomas, if you're listening and you want to come talk about factor three, no one else is ever going to do that. So please feel free to email cerebrocast at gmail.com. The thing about this that's interesting is that, yeah, between that original story and Giant Size, he has all of these Avengers stories I hadn't read and name Yeah. One. What's fascinating is, like, in the Namor stuff, the Submariner comics that you mentioned earlier, he's deported back to Japan, and then because he has dishonored his family, he is rejected from, like, all polite society and becomes, like, a vagrant in the slums in Tokyo. Which, like, I don't super know how realistic that is, because, like... I don't know. Seems off to me. It seems a little bit weird, especially because, like, a few, like, in Giant Size, he's, like, kind of back to normal. Like, he's Yeah, well, I think this story out. is a bit of a fluke, right? He gets manipulated by the Dragon Lord, not the dra- to oh, so that's the other thing that <laughs> like, is really important about X-Men 64, which kind of helped sort of endear the character to me a little bit. The interaction with the uncle sets the tone for the rest of Shiro's publication history, which is that he is very easily tricked by people. Specifically, like, older men who encourage him to do crimes. Yeah. And to sort of tie it all the way forward to, like, X-Men number two, like, that's really what his speech is about. He's talking about how much he wanted a cause that he really believed in and was able to fight for. Like, he wanted to be this, like, noble warrior or whatever. But he is... So but bad he's constantly been picking... co-opted because he's bad <laughs> yeah. at picking a cause. He's so bad at picking a cause. He is like not great at figuring out when people are just using him. Like this guy, the Dragon Lord, is in this bonkers outfit, which like <laughs> you thought you thought his costume was like based on the Rising Sun Vile. Like, look at this dude with like the fucking have you seen A this brilliant guy? young man who had fallen on hard times. Sunfire! Ah yes, I have heard of your exploits. You will join me then. The Dragon Lord sucks. Don't worry about the Dragon Lord. Yeah, I mean, like... <sighs> the Dragon Lord wants to kill Americans or whatever. Namor stops everything. So this is the truly bizarre part of the story where, like, so it starts out with Shiro kind of doing the generic, like, oh, we want, like, he says, Japan will again find her greatness in battle. Like, that's theoretically his motivation for joining with the Dragon Lord. They're on this island base on an island called Krakinoa, which is, like, I don't think a subtle 
reference. Yeah, right. And then it gets really weird because later he sort of says, like, my concern is that the Americans return their war one control of this island to our people. So then it's like, oh, shit, there's a reveal. So this is about Okinawa, right? Exactly. And it's like another unfortunately surprisingly good point from sunfire in this right like oh the occupation of okinawa by america is kind of fucked up absolutely fucked up like i don't want to get too much into the details no no, no we don't have to get into it but but like if you want to look into it like yeah like google it it's not great to okinawa and like sunfire thinks that he is helping these people also important context for this comic that is just a fact if you go back to the golden age submariner comics where namor is fighting japan those comics are astoundingly racist to the point where it is shocking now to read them. Like, there's an infamous page where Namor disguises himself as a Japanese person by, like, <sighs> taping his eyes and giving himself buck teeth and, like, all of this other shit. Like, it is... It, it's bad. So what's interesting about this comic is that Shiro's animosity for Namor makes a lot of sense. Exactly. And, like, Namor, to his credit, is, like... I mean, like, he's a total ass, and I love him. But Well, like, it's he Namor. Is, he sucks. But, like, you know, I love him. So he's the worst. And I love yeah. him. Yeah. No, absolutely. But he's, like, not actually terrible to Shiro. There's an interesting comparison made between the two of them where, like, Namor is technically also a nationalist character, except that right. his nation is fake. So he kind he's of gets fictional because Atlantis mm-hmm. isn't real. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he literally says, like, what do I care for such petty nationalism? Such nonsense ended in my youth. Like, this is another comic that really emphasizes, like, Shiro is young and, like, therefore kind of stupid. Right. He's, like, 20 years old. He's still exactly. figuring out what's going on. Yeah. And there's, a like, a hot guy in a Speedo flying around and he's, like, distracted. You know, he's distracted by the, the strange stirrings deep in his heart that's similar in tone to the iron man story that comes after yes. where it's like the whole point is iron man is like an american arms dealer guy or whatever but like mm-hmm. they learn a valuable lesson about we're not so different or what you know yeah like and that. he has to learn that lesson over and over again which is what kind of gets well a little that's bit the orientalist aspect exactly. is that he's, yeah, like he's always reset back to like to oh. the inflexible asian guy who needs to realize that americans aren't so different from him mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. yeah that is the white man comes function. along and teaches him about prejudice which like, right okay <laughs> um yeah especially because okay so here's the super wild part about this submariner comic the dragon lord is capturing a U.S. ship that is carrying defoliants to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Submariner is concerned because he's like, oh, they're going to, like, destroy the ship and, like, the defoliants are going to, like, leak into the ocean and, like, ruin they're gonna the They're going to pollute the ocean. There's no concern for Vietnam. They're, like, the heroic <laughs> Namor ending is of the specifically story. for the sea. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And not only that, but after they save the ship, they're like, oh, you better keep going on. Don't worry, we're going to get all those defoliants to Vietnam now. Your it's ship like, wait, is seaworthy guys. again, Captain. Tell your commander that reparations will be made as soon as the situation is cleared up. So the <sighs> heroes of this story have safely delivered Agent Orange. Agent to Orange to... <laughs> <gasps> French Indochina. Yeah, that's um Yeah, that's uh, fucked is what there. that is. Yeah. In between the Submariner and the Iron Man comics, there is the Avengers versus Defenders storyline, which you do not need to worry about. Oh yeah, I didn't even read that. Like I don't really understand what it's about. All that matters is that Namor and Captain America and Shiro are having like kind of a 
I think I sent you this panel like way back when I first started the read through. They are fighting over what looks like a giant magenta dildo. Oh yeah, I remember that. The size of his forearm. And it has what could very easily be a suction cup at the end of it, as Mm -hmm. some dildos do. Sure. Um, So they're fighting over that, and Shiro's mad because it's in Japan. It's, yeah. You can't have this (laughs) dildo here in my homeland. Pretty much, yeah. It's called the Evil Eye or something. Anyways, in Iron Man, there's like a similar beat of like Shiro's stated motivation for being in Vietnam is he wants to regain honor, which like, okay, sure, by advancing japan's interest in reconstruction work in your country so he's like Hmm. he's like doing the work you know i mean Mm -hmm. like it's still a little bit yikesy but like then we get into giant size x-men where xavier calls in a favor basically because he needs this new x-men team to go to krakoa sunfire does help with the krakoan rescue mission except then he immediately is like and now i quit because i hate all of you (laughs) actually it's important that he quits once before that he quits twice in the span of two issues yeah he has to show back up he has to like fly up into the plane i don't think it's called the blackbird yet but like their x-jet and just be like hey i changed my mind and then he helps them on krakoa he loves a flounce he loves a flounce he loves a dramatic quit he loves to quit and then come quitting back. is gay culture it is it is also very funny that like charles xavier is recruiting shiro to this team when like they haven't met before i'm pretty sure he was dead in x-men 64 he sure so. was yeah he comes back the following issue <laughs> just missed him <laughs> just missed him and as a side note he's really mean to nightcrawler in this and i want him to like have a little moment where he apologizes or like is not, or like has like a better relationship with nightcrawler that's sure. all i really want yeah then in x-men 94 like you said he quits again this is where you can tell it's scripted by chris claremont because his reason for quitting is my duty is to my country and my emperor which is something that he said. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, he loves a Japanese honor moment. He does. Yeah. Because then when he comes back in X-Men, because again, we can't get into all the Avengers stuff, but like when he comes back in X-Men, it's deeper into the Claremont run. It's like 118 to 120. Mm-hmm. This is after the X-Men have been separated in the Savage Land. They fight Moses Magnum, a character you truly do not need to worry about. Nope. Has not even achieved two Zaladanes. Has he really? Yep, 21 appearances. I looked it up because I was like, who has even used Moses Magnum post this story? Because when I was a kid reading this in the Marvel Masterworks, I assumed Moses Magnum was a huge fucking deal. And then he just never came back. Moses Magnum, by the way, speaking of imperialism, Moses Magnum's backstory is that he's Ethiopian and he sided with the Italians when they invaded. So, oh gosh, not the best guy in general, but he tries to destroy Japan. Banshee saves Japan by screaming until he burns out his powers to prevent Moses Magnum from sinking the islands into the sea or whatever. This is where Sunfire teams up with the X-Men. It's also where Mariko is introduced and we learn that she is his cousin. This is where the Yashida Yoshida problem happens because in this story, his name is given as Shiro Yashida, much like Mariko Mm -hmm. Yashida. But in the 60s story, he's Shiro Yoshida. So after this story, he's Yoshida, she's Yashida, and they're cousins and just don't worry about it is the way that it gets resolved. Uh They try to explain it in, like, the most hilarious way. In X-Men 181, 
they're doing a thing where like different characters are like answering the letters oh yeah in the letters column somebody writes in it's wolverine's turn to answer the letters column but i think it's still chris claremont like actually doing no no it is he wrote those Yeah. yeah someone asks about yoshida yashida and he says the yoshidas are a subordinate branch of the family which is why the name is different that's yeah, I mean, it's a hand wave, right? Yeah, that's not a thing that happens in real life. No, but... it's just a mistake, but he yeah. you know, made it work. Yeah. I do want to say real quick, like, this story stands out because this is, like, one of the first times that they sort of have Logan's association with Japan, which will continue on for decades. Forever. It. I mean, the second issue of Ten Lives oh came gosh. out today, and he was all up in Japan. Maybe phrase that a little bit differently. But... He was all up in his Japanese wife who turned out to be Omega Red. Read it. Great comic. I love that Wolverine is now canonically fucked Omega Red. Oh, gosh, he has, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is technically what happened. Anyways, this is where it all starts. There is a newspaper that is picked up and, like, Logan turns out he can read Japanese. <laughs> because here's the thing. In some ways, this really speaks to, like, a pattern of... I mean, like, the whole white man in Asia trope is, like, well-documented. I don't think it's yeah. super necessary to explain all of it. Especially at this time in comics. Absolutely. Iron Fist, Doctor yeah. Strange, all Iron of those Fist, characters. Yeah, all of those. I think, in sort of a meta sense, this is why Shiro can't be on the team. Because, like, if he is, then there's no need for, like, a little mini feat moment where, like, Logan reveals that he can speak Japanese. He undermines like Wolverine's exactly. cool I-get-Asia factor mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. he's an actual yeah. Asian person. Logan, by default, is, like, the Japan expert of the X-Men. Well, it becomes about Logan as Mariko's gaijin beloved. Yeah impressing shiro like that becomes the arc like this comes up in like that wolverine miniseries as well like they talk about how he speaks japanese like even better than like a native it becomes about how like wolverine is more japanese than like the japanese people right because he's the viewpoint character it's again it's a last samurai kind of vibe yeah yeah this is where it all starts Then he's in Contest of Champions, which I'm not going to talk about. Absolutely not, yeah. He fights Darkstar. He does. That's pretty gay. It's gay to fight Darkstar. It is. Or to be into Darkstar, as Iceman was in Champions. (laughs) Oh my god! They can talk about that. They They should talk talk about about that sometime. They should bond about (laughs) Lania Petrovna. But yeah, so then he comes back like a million issues later. It's 181, as you mentioned. Here, at this point, Mariko has taken over the Yashida clan, which is a Yakuza clan, by the way, which is sure. just like, sure. Yeah. And now he has to defer to her and clearly is awkward. Right? The moment is like, she says, Shiro, perhaps you also may be of use. And they're speaking. It's translated from the Japanese. So like it's in the mm-hmm. little brackets, which I always enjoy. <laughs> Shiro, perhaps you also may be of use. And he says, is your concern for the homeland, Mariko, or for your gaijin lover? I am Lord of Clan Yashida, cousin. It is not your place to question my will. Merely obey. And Mariko here is one of many female characters that Claremont puts in a position of power that is unusual for a woman and then has male characters, often relatives, 
object. Like that is yeah. his role in this story. And I'm not like mad about this because I know that it is an outlier for like women to be in these positions of power in the first place. But it does get a little bit frustrating when like multiple times, even in the last story that we talked about, he's like he serves to be like the voice of misogyny, basically, which is yeah. kind of unfortunate mm-hmm. when like he doesn't really get to do anything else. He and Silver Samurai are sort of the ones who are yeah. like, why is this woman in charge? But like Silver Samurai is at least a bad guy. Exactly. In the earlier comic, he like makes some rude comments about Colleen Wing and Misty Knight. And like in a Claremont book, the person who's rude to Colleen Wing and Misty Knight is the bad guy. Is right? the bad guy, <laughs> right. Yeah, no, you can't. Yeah. Luckily, it's not like a huge recurring beat that like he's sexist because that would be like he already be he has enough baggage yeah then there's a deathlock story that i'm not like again all you need to know is that he once he again gets manipulated gets by, by yet an older another japanese older person. japanese person yeah. who tells him to do bad stuff real quick there is a marvel comics presents number 32 story where he is also disillusioned by being mm-hmm. admiral like he's he admires this businessman Kishi Oramosha, no idea if that's a real name. And then it turns out that he wants to save the world from climate change by destroying Japan to motivate the other nations. Yeah, it's not logical eco-terrorism. It's just kind it of is like... Not. Yeah, and it, yeah. it is, again, sort of like the Orientalist trope of like the self-sacrificing Asians who are like, you know, all of that nonsense. Yeah. I feel like his next big story, at least in X-Men, is the one that we mentioned earlier, where he teams up with the New Mutants in the Liefeld late New Mutants period. This is in, I think, 93, 94, 95. This is the closest he has ever been to showing interest in a woman. Yeah, because he's very taken with Dragoness. Which is, like, also pretty gay. It's like the Asian equivalent of dating Polaris. Being into Dragoness (laughs) is gay, period. Like, anybody who's looking at her... Because here's the thing, Dragoness is camp. Dragoness also got powers from Hiroshima, but her power is just to zap people with her fingers. And she decided, no, I'm going to fully be Dragon Lady. I'm going to make myself this iconic Asian villainess and got robot dragon wings. Like, it's not part of her mutation. She just decided, I will be Dragoness. She picked a theme. She went to Celine for some PR advice. She wanted to theme herself. (laughs) And she, by God, she did it. And then Shiro describes her as... Who are you who burns with the flame as white hot as my own? So he's basically saying, like, I wish I could be as attractive to men as you are, Dragoness. Yeah. <laughs> he is craving to be Dragoness, except that he's very disappointed in her because she's so pussy and yet she's selling heroin to kids or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a completely random moment where, like, Cannonball makes out with Dragoness and it turns out that it's like a trick to like steal a key from her and then Boom Boom gets mad and makes out with Cannonball. All the while, Shiro is like also tied up next to them just like watching. Which is I crazy. read this comic when I was like 11 years old oh. and I will say I love Dragoness. Like this is a character who I think like get this bitch into a book like let her do something i will say she benefits from being introduced in the same comic as sumo sumo and kamikaze Kamikaze. so it's like at least she's not that racist (laughs) right i feel like sumo is a character that you could save kamikaze i think is a character we probably just need to relegate to the dustbin yeah Yeah. that's Mm. probably just not he's gonna oh this is perhaps a little bit too dark but uh, he can take one for the team yeah i think he's i think he's just not one we need to revisit yeah we have enough to do we can can there's a lot of work to be done and he's not he's not the one 
Then uh, um, there's more West Avengers Coast stuff Avengers. we don't care about. Unless do you care about West Coast Avengers? Um, he gets brainwashed. He gets and... brainwashed into attacking America on the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. So you know we're course. we're getting we're getting better. He's being brainwashed instead of just being tricked. Instead of just so, doing like, it because progress. he got tricked, right? Um, also, he he gets he comes back to his senses by being beaten up by Namor. Which uh... when are they gonna fuck? Is the real question, <sighs> right? Truly, they have been skirting around this since 1970. They they need to fuck. That's what it is. Fire and really. water. Like, it's a bit cheesy, but it's so obvious that it just needs to happen, you know? You know? It just it feels like that's... They're both mean in, like, a really similar way, and I feel like that's just... That, well, the thing is, like, I don't know if they, like, could because they're so similar, but on the other hand, maybe they could be boyfriend twins. Like, you never yeah, know. Yeah, I feel like... Know? Like, it would be like a Because Namor was into Quicksilver in that Secret Wars House of no, M absolutely. mini. Yeah. So, like, that's, again, like, that's real boyfriend twins energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After that Avengers West Coast story, then he pops up a bunch in sort of early 90s X-Men. He has a new costume. He finally has a new costume. Yeah, I had an action figure of him in this costume. Really? Like they, yeah, they like made a push with this costume. He has it's sort of samurai themed. It looks not unlike Silver Samurai's. He has like the big shoulders and whatnot, but he also has a huge ponytail because it's the '90s yeah. and everybody has long hair now. He also has like cyber parts because everyone has cyber parts. Because everybody, it's the '90s. I don't, yeah, this costume sucks. To be it, clear, it does. But like it's. By virtue of not being the By flag virtue of suit. not being that flag suit, yeah. It is. But he is yeah. serving at this point as, like, Japan's Captain Japan, basically. Yes, and this is where you start to get into, yeah, like, this is where you start to get into, well, you know, people are saying that he works for Japan. I think this might be the first time that he works, like, for the Japanese government. No, it happens before that, like, oh, in, that's the, right. in, the, in, in the, like, the Iron Magnum Man stuff. stories and the Moses Magnum story. and yeah. In Iron Man, he is just, like, kind of around i think moses magnum is the first one he's like talking to the prime minister where it's like here i am like with yeah yeah. and it's like all right well now we have to now we have to deal with this for the next few like yeah so the big arc here is that the hand and clan yashida are at war this is when mariko gets killed by matsuo suriyaba i think you're thinking of wolverine yeah that is wolverine oh you're right there's a thing first in uncanny (laughs) the mikhail rasputin oh my god the mikhail of it all Okay, I'm not going to make you talk about it for too long. I will only say that he and Bobby have some fun energy in this, and they should fuck too. Well, I know that you're into a Bobby and Sunfire. It's right there, fire and ice. It is, and as I noted in the Prodigy episode, Iceman likes a bitch. He does. And unlike Pyro, who's nice, Sunfire is a bitch. He sure is. And I think he needs someone like Bobby who can like kind of be like a bit of a goofball. Be fun, take, yeah. Yeah, right. like bring him out of his shell a little bit. Ever since you pitched this to me, I've been very, very into it, honestly. No, absolutely. Like I need to see them on panel again. On this one, they sort of have like a nice little moment of like he he says, it was good to fight at your side instead of against you as when first we met. Yeah, and they make a whole, I remember there's like a joke about how 
Who would have thought that an American, a Russian, and a Japanese person yeah. working together would solve this problem? They seal like a, a space mm-hmm. and time void. This is after Claremont's left. This is when Mikhail is revealed to have been alive the whole time. Because in Claremont, Mikhail was just like a dead backstory character. Yeah, I did not realize this was Mikhail's like first appearance when I oh, read this. This is his debut, yeah. I was so confused. And I was just like, <laughs> reading all these comics is a little bit like playing Where's Waldo for Sunfire. Complete with, like, the red and white stripes, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is just like, all right, X-Men, X-Men, X-Men. Oh, there they are. One panel. Taking a screenshot and moving on. They do have, like, a fun little kind of, like, buddy comedy energy almost. Like, they're sort of riffing off of each other. And there is a funny moment where... So, like, they save some of the natives of, like, this dimensional rift or whatever. Truly whatever. This is a big don't worry about it. They save one of the random women who live in this rift. Um, she's like, she's talking to Bobby. She's like, you have my gratitude. Is there anything I can do for you? And Bobby's like, kind of pretending to flirt with her because he's still pretending to be straight at this point. He's like, I have a list somewhere. Right. Shiro interrupts them by yelling at him. And he has to, he's like, fine, I'll settle for directions to the rebel camp, I guess, because his boyfriend is mad at him for for flirting with a woman, basically. (laughs) That leads into the Wolverine story that I jumped ahead to by accident, which is that's the one where Mariko dies. And he's not even there when she dies. No, and he's like, and he's like, Logan, like, stop being such a You gotta move on. Like, man up or whatever. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not great. It's not my favorite. But this is Larry Hama. Yes. I believe it's the first time that a Japanese person has written the character. It is the first and only time that a Japanese person has written a character. That I know of. Sorry, I shouldn't like too much. But I can't think of another one. So Um, I should note that the the arc that we just talked about, um, I think it is really important that in the story where he gets that new costume, the Mikhail Rasputin arc, it is the first time that he's written by an Asian person. Uh, that story is co-plotted by Will Spurtasio. By Will Spurtasio and Jim Lee. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, all right, like, you know, that's, why i i don't know how much they were thinking about that but like either way it's important to have these viewpoints in the room yeah and those are a filipino person and a korean person so maybe they said let's get him out of that costume i don't Mm -hmm. know we'd have to ask them but it's notable that that's when he takes it off for the first time Mm -hmm. yeah then there's another submariner story don't care again he needs to fuck submariner he has a little moment where he's like because my attire has changed since last we met, allow me to introduce myself. You know me. He's like bragging to Namor that he's got like a little outfit change. I know, and it's in chopsticks font. It's so bad. It's like, you know me as Sunfire. And it's somehow like not even the most racist font that we're going to see. in this. But it's totally that font that Margaret Cho always talks about where she's just like, please (laughs) do not write my name in that font. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to make you talk about Alpha Flight. Don't worry. (sighs) Thank you. Real quick, there's a whole period of time where silver samurai is running the clan now sunfire's powers are out of control then he turns black half of his body turns like because of radiation poisoning kind of it turns out that it's the here's the thing this is not an avengers podcast babes and it's not an alpha flight podcast either it has something to do with the thing that empowered jack of hearts the Avengers character. So they they sort of explained it away as the that, zero the fluid. I think that's a retcon in Big Hero Six. Yes, in the beginning, it's actually Magneto's fault. Right, Magneto's EMP <laughs> in Fatal Attractions. Up, in Fatal Attractions, yep. fucks up Shiro's power, and then he has like 
power cancer in sort yeah. of like a fire star kind of way, except it turns his body slowly black. And this is when he's yeah. at Alpha Flight because Wolverine suggests. <gasps> Wolverine recommends that someone go to Alpha Flight. Then he go hang out with Department H and then Department and H does all kinds of evil experiments on him. It's like, yeah, duh. Yeah, fuck you, Canada's Wolverine. evil in the Marvel yeah. Universe. Logan, like, did you forget? This person has worn a flag of Imperial Japan, and this is like one of the more fascist governments that he works yeah. for. Canada <laughs> is the most evil government he's ever worked I'm, for. We've right. established that I'm Canadian, right? I can say this. We show. have, yeah, it's, it's cool. fine. Yeah. So that doesn't really go well. Eventually he like flies away, and this is a bad run of Alpha Flight that nobody cares about anyway. So yeah, he has it. like a couple of fun kind of moments with the rest of like, it's nice when he gets to like hang out with other people that are sort of younger. Mm. Um, and he has like one moment when he's brainwashed by Mesmero that he's like, <laughs> Mesmero is always a good time, except in the Thierry Weapon X. But otherwise, no, Mesmero sure. is always yeah. a good time. Uh, but um, he like takes it personally that Mesmero is brainwashing these kids, and I feel like that is like a hint of characterization in terms sure. of like, Sunfire not wanting people to be manipulated because he knows that shit. But it's like that's all you really, that's all you could possibly get out of the story. Yeah, during that run of Alpha Flight, you also get a Big Hero Six miniseries where he helps found Big Hero Six, which is Japan's super team. You truly don't have to worry about it. It does not matter. But the problems with his powers get fixed. Yeah, like nice. he's just dying because of his powers. It's not particularly interesting. Again, like if I had to sort of glean out a silver lining from it, it is kind of interesting to see like characters in Japan like respect mm -hmm. and like Sunfire, even though that again sort of gets into like weird optics. Well, because then the next time we see him, it's the 12 and he's back in the original costume. And now he's like yeah. working very emphatically for Japan, yeah. yada, yada, yada. He's working for something called the Yakiba, which... The Yakiba, which is the cutting edge of Japan's military. I think it's supposed to be like a play on like shield and sword, like for Japan. Yeah. But it's but like, like, it's not real to my knowledge. Well, it's like um, Japan doesn't have a military. They sure don't. They sure don't. <laughs> like famously not allowed to. Yeah. It's just unfortunate that he's back in the costume again. Yeah, he's one of the 12. He gets drawn by Alan Davis, which is nice. Unfortunately, it's in that costume. He and Iceman are actually the opposite numbers in the 12 with Storm anchoring between them. The three of them represent like the natural forces of the Earth or whatever. The 12 is a bad crossover and you don't have to worry about it. Then he's just a cameo queen for a really long time. Yeah. There is a very funny moment in Ages of Apocalypse, which is, like, a direct follow-up to the Twelve with, like, a bunch of mm -hmm. random, like, group hallucinations, sort of. It's in Not the Twelve Omnibus for some reason. You're just like, I guess we're is. here. I have the Twelve Omnibus because it was on sale. All you need to know is that in one of these, there's an alternate version of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants where they're, like, they have rogue as the mastermind they have like lorna as the scarlet witch sort of mm -hmm. and they have shiro as quicksilver which is kind of very funny kind of funny yeah they should also fuck just putting that up they there. should also fuck then he fights iron fist at one point because oh you know goodness. what okay i'm not gonna make you talk about this <laughs> every asian character should get to slap iron fist around once or twice 
Then there's the moment where Sabretooth apparently kills him in the Tyrion Weapon X, but then he's better in time for Morrison's new X-Men where he's randomly part of X-Corp Mumbai, which is so random that when I was talking about it in an earlier episode, I confused him with Neil Shara in my head because it would have made sense for Neil Shara to be an X-Corp Mumbai, but it's actually Sunfire. It's Sunfire, Warpath, Feral, and Thorn. They are X-Corp Mumbai. Why not? Feral and Thorn hate each other, and yet they are on this team without any mention of the fact that they hate each other so much that Thorne sent Feral to prison for life, like in the previous story they appeared in. So it's just one of those things where you have to just like, let it go, because Grant doesn't care. Somehow, he's still working for the Japanese government. So like, he has a fight with Storm in X-Men Unlimited. Oh, we forgot, actually, around this time, also in a different X-Men Unlimited, there's a flashback story where he like tries to save his cousin from like a drug Who ring. Who was a drug addict. Yeah, yeah and it, it ends badly. It's not great. It's whatever, but it's nice that someone even thought, like, let's do a backstory issue for Sunfire, yes. I guess. Mm-hmm. My personal read of it is that it takes place directly after X-Men 64 when he's like supposedly... That's when it would make yeah. the most sense, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of nice to think about. Then comes the Rogue Solo. Rogue Volume 3. Can we talk about the Rogue Solo? Let's talk about the Rogue Solo. So this book is not good. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) I love Rogue. I don't know much about her, and I'm sure that this is not, like, a good example of her character. I will say, as Rogue Solos go, it's probably the best one. Because the other Rogue Solo is the one... You're going to get in the mentions. They're going to find you, Connor. Um, well, Mr. and Mrs. X is not a solo, and neither is Rogue and Gambit. Those are not solo books. <laughs> That's right. So I do like the Rogue solo series because it does kind of finally reinforce my read that his problematic nationalist nonsense in his origin is like primarily motivated by his uncle. And it's nice to get like a little reminder of that. It is weird that it's a flashback where Rogue is like in Shiro's place in these memories. <laughs> Yeah, so like this whole Maxi series is based around the premise that there was this mutant called Blindspot who worked (sighs) a lot with Mystique and Destiny and she erased everybody's memories. So it's like a retcon story. Basically, stuff about Sunfire and Rogue doing terrorism with Mystique leaks because of Lady Deathstrike to the press because they were trying to steal Adamantium or whatever. Don't worry about it. The point is that Lady Deathstrike chops his legs off. Um, Chops them straight off. Also, before that, before that, actually, he's so ashamed of the public. This is the part that's truly... Mm -hmm. He decides to commit ritual seppuku because he has brought so much shame to his family, which is like... That's just a Tuesday for Asian people, you know? You know, like, okay, guys... I will say, I don't know if this is supposed to be funny, but it is very funny that Rogue, when she's on the phone with him, she calls it, and it's written out like almost phonetically, she calls it Harry Carey. You can't commit Harry Carey? (laughs) Shiro, you can't commit Harry Carey? You have so much to live for. And he's like, I must commit ritual seppuku. I have dishonored my family. Like he's about to do it when Rogue calls and, like, starts leaving a really long message on his answering machine. Hey, I'm just trying to... Do you know anything about this photograph of us? Because I don't remember it either, and I'm starting to think that maybe someone's been tampering with our memories, Shiro. 
it's so funny that she basically like annoys him into not, <laughs> into not killing himself. Yeah. Unfortunate, but what are you going to do? They end up fighting with Lady Deathstrike and she just chops his fucking legs off at the knees, like just slices him right the fuck. Yeah. Off. So he's legless. He is then dying and he encourages Rogue, who has lost her Ms. Marvel powers by this point in her publication history. Yes. He's like, absorb me, kill me, and use my powers to defeat Lady Deathstrike. And she's like, no, Shiro, I won't kill you. I'll take your powers for a second to fight Lady Deathstrike, but I won't take then- too much. And then Blindspot, Blind who's Spot the fucking- worst, by the way, she just like shoves Rogue's face in just long enough to make it a permanent transfer. Yes. So one more point in the Shiro is gay column, because if there's one thing that Rogue does, it's kiss gay men. Yeah. Famously, X-Men Alpha Flight with Northstar. Sure. Yeah. Went on that road trip with Bobby. Mm-hmm. Married Gambit, who much like you, Justin, is half gay. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's a thing she does. And I love that. It sure is. I do actually really like Rogue and Shiro's friendship. It's very yeah, funny. Yeah, it's fun. It's in a this weird book, recurring honestly. beat. Like it also showed up in the 12 because he was like trying to hunt down Mystique and he thought that Rogue was Mystique in disguise. Yeah, he fights Rogue and she's like. <laughs> she punches him and he's like. Mystique doesn't have super strength, Shiro. Specifically, I think they get along as friends because they both think that they're smarter than the other. And neither of them is smart. Exactly. Right. (laughs) And it's fun, actually, that they're on this X-Men team together. I'd like to see them interacting again. Exactly. We haven't really gotten a chance to see them. They have a history. They do, yeah. wild. Which is, yeah, wild, honestly, (laughs) because Shira doesn't really have a history with that many characters. It's like... Rogan, Namor, and Bobby he and a couple other people. He has a history with a lot of characters, Logan. but all of the histories are super brief. Like, he has, like, one issue with, like, a bunch right. of different characters. Well, so, speaking of, after this, in his legs chopped off era, he is captured by Apocalypse, who turns him into the new Horseman of Famine. Yeah. And this, honestly... Nobody knew what to do with this character is the vibe that I get. And so what they did was they turned him into his AOA design because in Age of Apocalypse, he had this really cool design where he's like a fire guy with like a porcelain mask and it's really cool looking. And so Apocalypse just turns him into that guy, makes him the new famine, and now his fire makes people hungry, which like, sure, whatever. Yeah. He's just a bad guy for like years. After the Apocalypse arc ends he becomes one of Sinister's marauders. He and Gambit, who were both corrupted by Apocalypse, join the marauders and are with them up through Messiah Complex. I do need to point out, this is where my Gambit and Sunfire ship comes from. Totally down with that also. <laughs> like, not currently, but they should definitely reference that. Like They, they could have a threesome with Rogue. I think Rogue would, like, cheer them on. Well, she would be watching. It would exactly. be like... Like, right. she's... Yeah, like, she is like... Remy's touching gay. both of them. Exactly, exactly. Because Shiro's just... He's just fucking gay, pal. He is. I mean, like, I feel like as a bisexual, I feel like I should advocate for him being bi, but I'm like, this guy. But he's gay. not. When has he ever expressed interest in a woman besides Dragoness? <laughs> who he literally was just like, oh my god, she's so fierce. Too bad she's evil. So this is actually kind of funny because, okay, so first, again... He was basically saying, like, honestly work to Dragoness, but then he was he like, no, wait, was. you're actually doing evil yes. stuff. I have to stop you. He was... Very much that drill tweet of like, you know, like correcting a previous. Unfortunately, you do not got to hand it to Dragoness of the Mutant Liberation Front. Right. (laughs) Who is dealing drugs for strife. Real quick, more evidence that Shiro is gay. Emma Frost performs like mind therapy on him. And we all know what that's code for. If she's doing mind therapy with you, she's either trying to tell you you're gay or she's trying to date you. 
And yeah. in this case, he is, she's she not trying to not date trying Sunfire. To date. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of this Horseman of Apocalypse arc, he kidnaps Gambit. Like he literally, like he's unconscious and he's literally like carrying him off over his shoulder. Yeah. And Rogue is like, "Where do you think you're going with Remy?" And I'm like, "They're gonna go fuck. They're gonna go fuck, honey." They have like a weird wrestling moment in a temple in Japan or something. And Shiro's like, "We should just abandon everything we ever do from our past and just like go on together into the future." And Remy's yes, like, "I don't know about that." Shiro is basically proposing to Gambit. Yeah, it's kind of wild. But the best part is that first they decide they're going to make a pit stop and kidnap Polaris. Yes, because Polaris <laughs> was also a horseman with them. Absolutely, she was pestilence. Like if dating. Polaris is gay, like kidnapping. Kidnapping her Polaris as, like, part is of your really horsemen gay. of apocalypse yeah. recovery squad. With your new fling. <laughs> Especially because like Bobby and Alex are both with the X-Men and like are trying to like fight Shiro to stop him from kidnapping Lorna. <laughs> Bobby and Alex are trying to prevent Remy and Shiro from kidnapping Lorna. It's a big gay power struggle. Absolutely. That's all I yeah, that's my Messiah complex is I think <sighs> Like, he gets recruited by Mr. Sinister because if someone is going to be known for being easily tricked, two people that he has to be tricked by are Apocalypse and Mr. Sinister. So it's good that we get those. Those are the trickiest people, right? Those are the people that trick you, yeah. I think you can, because, like, Gambit in this is, like, theoretically pretending to work for Mr. Sinister. He's undercover working for the X-Men Yeah, so I feel like you can no-prize it as, like, Shiro's in on the plan or something. Well, also, like, like, Apocalypse literally brainwashed him, and we saw that. So, like, it's fine. Literally, don't worry about it, because the next time he turns up, it's in Uncanny (laughs) Avengers, where he's just back... Back in his flag suit and joins the Avengers Unity Squad. And we're not, I don't care. We're just, no, I'm sorry. We're not doing Rick Remender's Uncanny Avengers. We're simply not going to do it. Can I, can I say one thing? Oh, you can say whatever you want, but we're going to move right along. Okay. First, it is extremely funny that this Avengers team is literally like a PR squad because they put him back in the fucking flag suit. Like you have one job, Janet Van Dyne. You are a costume designer. You should know what clothes mean. Janet has never thought in her life about Japanese imperialism. (laughs) She truly hasn't. No. It is also very funny that Wolverine tries to recruit Shiro by being like, this is what Charles Xavier wanted. Because if there is one person that Shiro Yoshida has no respect for, it is Charles fucking Xavier. Yeah, he's just like, that guy? Why would I care? Like, we should do what Charles wanted now that he's dead. And Shiro's like, no, they have a little mm-hmm. moment where Wolverine is like, Chuck thought you were something special. We were always talking about how you were going to like surprise us one day. Charles Xavier has never thought about Charles Shiro hasn't Yoshida. spoken about Shiro Yoshida since literally 1975. Yeah. So anyway, there's a moment here where he turns into an energy being and he has to be held together. Like he evol- his power evolves into like energy or whatever. But again, don't worry about it because the next time we see him, he's regular again and just back in the flag suit, which is for Inhumans versus X-Men, <clears throat> which we're going to skip also. But he does do a cool heroic thing to try and save his fellow mutants, which is like, I, I think, a character growth moment for him that leads him into Krakoa on some level, which is like he flies yeah. alchemy up to neutralize the Terrigen yes. cloud and that's mm. a cool indefinite. I really like him interacting with alchemy because I think that he is at his best when he's sort of able to kind of mentor young people in like a very 
There's a question about that. So we'll get oh, to okay. that shortly. Yeah, and then basically nothing else important ever happens to him until the Krakow and X-Men period, which we've kind of already talked about. Which, thank Lord, yeah. Yeah. We haven't talked about S.W.O.R.D. We need to shout out S.W.O.R.D. He has a cute moment in S.W.O.R.D. where Fabian I Cortez really like juices him Sword. up. Fabian Cortez gets him so horned up that he just, like, he... explodes the null beast. Listen, nobody's perfect. No, listen, who among us, what gay has not occasionally, like, Fabian gives him a bump yeah and he blows up a latex space dragon and sometimes when you've been out clubbing all night and you are a conflicted gay youth and you know because no one's allowed to age who knows how old he is now it doesn't matter but the point is in his gay life he's still very much a youth because he's still a conflicted weirdo he needed that bump fabian gave him the bump and he just fucking exploded that dragon and it was great I do like this issue for Shiro because, like, he's not in a lot of it. His part of it is very short. But it's, like, a good mix of, like, powerful feats and, like, absolute flop moments. He, like, yeah, has a dramatic speech. Yeah, because he also, speech. like, dies he, real hard. Yeah, he has, a, he has a dramatic speech. He gets a hit in and then immediately, like, faints and falls to the ground. He has a little moment where he's like, oh, I can, I can still fight an Emma, like, telepathically to Magneto. He's like... He can't. He can't, actually. <laughs> and I feel like that is the energy that I want from Shiro all the time. And then he gets bumped. He gets like a nice little like, yes, moment where he like turns into a giant sun or whatever. And then the next time he shows up in Sword, he is a skeleton because he dies. He is a skeleton. He is literally just a skeleton. Super dead. Love that for him. He came back hotter than ever. Honestly, I do think he's hotter than ever. Like, I do think his current look is a very sexy design. It's a fantastic look. Yeah. Um, it makes him look very, like, slim in a way. More like sleek is the thing. Like Yes, exactly. Kind of like The Flash or, like, one of those guys where it's, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. you know he's ripped, but it's not. He's not, like, a muscle man. He's not Captain America. Yeah. It emphasizes, like, the flounciness. Like, there's so many panels where he's just standing in a particular way. He's faggoty hot. He's a homosexual, yeah. He's just a gay. He's fucking gay. Let's just do it. If anyone is listening who is allowed to rubber stamp that. Just a thought. Absolutely. Let's get into the questions, because we've got some good questions. And luckily, we already did a bunch of questions at the beginning, because you were just like, Connor, we got to talk about the flag now. We just can't. So anyway, Jeremy Large writes... Hi, Connor, and esteemed guest, Mr. Park. As ever, I look forward to your passionate, thoughtful analysis of these characters, especially Japan's own atomic superhero who's never gotten the respect he deserves. I've had an affection for Sunfire ever since reading a novelization of Giant Size X-Men number one as a wee lad, and I'm always delighted when he shows up, even if his prominent appearances are few and far between. Because he's one of the second Genesis crew, you'd think he'd have stuck around to become a core cast member of the X-Men. His prickly personality, the arrogant nobleman with a chip on his shoulder but a hero's heart, offers something unique in that original team. But he leaves at the end of that adventure and only pops up in a few guest appearances while Claremont's on the book. Since that run, numerous writers have tried to make Shiro happen, but he's never really stuck. Some leaned into the nationalist shtick, but others tried for a drastic makeover, like cutting off all his limbs or making him a horseman of the apocalypse. Probably the biggest push he received before Duggan's X-Men was in Uncanny Avengers, a book I personally love, partially because Sunfire is given a big heroic turn, which I gather is not very popular among the broader X-Fandom. My question is, why do you think no one has been successful in making Shiro a major player in the X-Universe? Is it because of the thorny political problem of his past as a Japanese flag suit hero? Is it because his powers are too similar to the Human Torch? Is it because his arrogant personality is too similar to other characters like Namor or Emma? Is it because his whole thing for a while was that he didn't want to join the X-Men? 
Why do you think he's being given a big push now in 2021? What are writers able to say with this character that they haven't been able to say before? Or did someone just go, this guy's powers are too cool not to give him one more shot? Looking forward to your thoughts on this atomic-powered jerk who I love unreservedly, make mine cerebro Jeremy Large. I think Jerry just likes him, is the vibe I get. Because like, Jerry wrote Uncanny Avengers after Remender, and that mm-hmm. run of Uncanny Avengers actually I think is quite good. Yeah, it did not have Sunfire. It did not have Sunfire in it, but I imagine that Jerry read the earlier issues. Absolutely. It seems to me like this is a character, maybe Jerry was like, I didn't get a chance to write him and I'd like to. We'd have to ask Jerry why he's getting a push because Jerry picked that team. Yeah, I feel like it's a small thing, but I can tell that Jerry, I don't know if this is a complete coincidence, but I feel like Jerry has read a lot of Sunfire's even earlier appearances, specifically because he always talks about turning things into slag like melting them mm, in the older yeah. stuff. And like that's a beat that's been repeated in this current X-Men run as well. Well, if you go back to the Wolverine episode of this podcast with Jerry, relatively early in the run of the pod, he talks about how he, as someone who loved Lone Wolf and Cub and other mm. Japanese art and manga at that time, before it was really widely available, was very drawn to Wolverine's adventures in Asia, in which Sunfire does play a part because of oh Mariko and all of that stuff. So I sent a question in for that episode, didn't I? You did. I sent the question about Japan and like Wolverine's yeah. thing for Japan. Yeah. <laughs> and Jerry and I talked about it. Yeah. 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 Full circle moment. But yeah. yeah. So I think he's a character that Jerry wanted to take for a spin. As for why he's never really happened, I do think the fact that he was primarily an antagonist to the X-Men rather than an ally most of the time is why he also, like, it's the same reason Darkstar never really happened or Sabra, which is that, like, they're so connected with their country of origin that it doesn't really make sense to have them, like, go hang out in Westchester. I think Krakoa has provided an opportunity for some of these characters because the X-Men are now a more global phenomenon than they were previously. I think that he was complicated to work into things. And also, yeah, his personality was a little redundant with Quicksilver, actually, in the 90s. And then with Namor in the Utopia period, you know, so there's never really been a moment for him. But I am excited to see him getting more of a platform. Yeah, totally agree. Like, Jeremy raised a lot of really good examples of why he hasn't really taken off as a character like a lot of really little reasons like the political stuff that you mentioned and we talked a little bit earlier about how he does sort of undermine people like logan being like japan experts just like by virtue of being a real japanese person in their presence yeah the fact that he's not american i think also Mm -hmm. may spook writers a little bit not american and not western Mm mm-hmm I think there's often a hesitation with those characters because it's like, oh, I could get this super wrong. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely, yeah. Especially with a character who is so associated with the nationalism of a foreign country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Alfonso Ariola writes, Hello, Connor and Justin. I was wondering why out of all the giant size X-Men, Sunfire seems to have the least characterization and significant relationships in the X-Books. Despite having some great looks and a visually distinct and useful power set, he doesn't have any real friends and or lovers besides maybe Wolverine and Gambit. Could the reason be that for the longest time, Western media has tended to rarely portray Asian men as romantic leads, and when they have a major role, they're desexualized, like the American work of Jackie Chan, Jet Li, or Ken Watanabe? Or am I cherry-picking, and the real reason is that Shiro's just too much of a dick to be fuckable, no less get a drink or an invite to a baseball game? This is Alfonso L.A. from the Discord. Shout out to the Quiet Council there, and big thanks to Justin and Connor. With gratitude, Alfonso. 
I thought that was an interesting question. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Especially we've talked about, you know, sort of the white man in Asia tropes, which often kind of use Asian men as like a foil to these white characters, right? Yeah, like, like especially Wolverine, who's hyper-masculine, and then these Asian men are more delicate, kind of. No, absolutely. In their robes and with their honor and such, you know? For sure, for sure. So that is part of the reason. And like, again, like you said earlier, um, Shiro is so tied to Japan, right? And like when X-Men stories are set in Japan, the romantic lead is going to be Wolverine. Right. Just by virtue of like his associations with like his po- he's a super fucking popular character. Wolverine's the most popular character in the franchise. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah, it's hard it's, when it's you're hard in a Wolverine story mm-hmm. to not be swallowed up by the Wolverine gravity. I do think the fact that he is an Asian man is he's never had a romance plot. Ever. Mm. And while I'm kind of glad for that now, because Because it it means that our gay reading works. No, absolutely. It also is notable, though. Like, he's never had a love interest that Mm. I can think of, ever. Yeah. I mean, like, this isn't, like, a new take by any means. No, that's, like, a thing that people have commented on relentlessly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Matt Brasil writes, Hello, Connor and Justin. So excited to hear you two talk about who I find to be the most fascinating member of Duggan's X-Men lineup. The second issue spotlight on Shiro really shows that he's a man who's followed countless causes for the wrong reasons. That he's more hopeful about being an X-Man this time shows a lot of growth, especially after a decade that saw him join Mystique's Marauders and then, more regrettably, the Uncanny Avengers. That's funny. My question is whether or not you two think Shiro's place in the X-Men could lead to him becoming a support system for younger, troubled mutants. Could Shiro be well-suited to help Malice or others like her work through their anger and embrace Krakoa? Also, is he annoyed Gambit hasn't invited him to poker in the treehouse? Or is he completely done with Remy's tomfoolery after they killed Cable together? Thanks so much again for an awesome podcast and getting me into the 80s X-Men. I'm almost done with the Inferno Omnibus and eagerly anticipating the next Excalibur Omnibus as it comes out soon. Always and forever, make mine Cerebro. Well, I love to hear people getting into the 80s material. (laughs) What do you think? You mentioned that you like when he interacts with younger people. Yeah, I would love for Shiro to like fully have his sort of Headmaster Magneto era where he is like kind of been through shit and Mm. that really informs the way that he interacts with younger people we talked a little bit about like the way that he talks to alchemy in fucking death of all books of all things i mean death of x is good it's just unfortunate that it leads into x-men yeah and it's also like again like talk about weird orientalism like there's the terrigen mist cloud that's about to hit japan and they keep talking about how grateful the japanese people must be about it like this cloud of chemicals about to descend on their city it's because it could give you inhuman powers wouldn't that be great you must be so thrilled inhumans or x-men eras luckily we quite simply do not have to worry about it yeah we don't (laughs) they're all dead now And the Eternals are queuing up now, and guess what? Go ask the Inhumans how that worked out for them, Druig. (laughs) I do love the idea of Shiro as, like, sort of a gruff, kind of mean, flouncy teacher who Mm -hmm. is able to take the many, many lessons that he's had to learn multiple times about trusting the wrong people and perhaps try to be a better role model for the next generation. I especially would love to see him talk to some, like, Asian like younger Asian mutants who mm-hmm. perhaps 
Well, we didn't even get into the House of M story because it's an alternate universe, but the House of M story where he's emperor of Japan doing evil experiments and he has a whole thing with Surge. And you know what? Let's not get into it because who cares? Fuck that. I don't Honestly, know. like I was scrolling through my little list and you skipped House of M and I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> I did that for you because I know how much you hated that story because you told us how much you hated that story in the Cerebro Discord moderator channel. I sure did, yeah. Making Shiro Emperor of Japan, even if it is like an AU that's meant to illustrate how horrible the world has gone wrong, like, don't do not do that. No, no one needs that in their life. Especially if he's doing, like, crimes against humanity. Yeah, I mean, look up Japanese war crimes during World War II, and you will see why this is an extremely bad taste. It's not a thing to do with the character, in my opinion. It absolutely is not. And it's just unnecessary. And they all die at the end. And it's House of M, so it doesn't matter. So, like, who Truly. cares? Harini Marchati writes, Hello, Connor and Justin. First of all, I just want to say how much I appreciate all that Justin does for the Cerebro Discord. You truly work so hard to rein everyone in and maintain the good vibes. It's incredible. I will turn this email into more Justin compliments if I continue. So on to my question. My question is about what romantic drama Sunfire should insert himself into or get involved in. He definitely deserves to live his best dramatic queer life on Krakoa, but who should he date? My mind is blanking on characters he would have a fun vibe with, but surely they exist. I'd love to hear your thoughts on who they are. We've talked about Iceman. We've talked about his history with Gambit. Is there anyone else you think he should bang it out with that would be fun? Besides Namor, obviously. I have a list. First of all, hi, Harini. You're the best. Thank you so much um, for all the <laughs> kind words. We've talked about Bobby. We've talked about Namor. We've talked about Gambit. Um, Captain America, just because I feel like that's... Ooh, spicy. Like, yeah. That's what we call international relations. I know a lot of people really like him with Sync. It is maybe not my first choice, but I absolutely do see it. Like the way I get the vibe. I just, again, like, as I've said many times in this show, I just don't think that the rainbow guy can be a queer character. Yeah. And like, he needs to wrap up his stuff with Laura first, which is also before he can date anybody. Yeah. No, that has to get handled. Yeah. That's like Shiro's cousin's ex fiance's daughter's ex boyfriend. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Right. There's like weird stuff going on there. That's true. Um, The Wolverine of it all is complicated there. North Star and Pietro both mean gay people that he should yeah fuck. for sure Johnny Storm fire powers you know there's something there why not Tony Stark they know each other why not let's go for it Dakin Dakin yeah Dakin and Shinobi are both like morally ambiguous yeah and they can like you know they can relate as like Japanese gays yeah absolutely other. yeah not to be too like, you know, let's throw all the Japanese characters together. But I do think they could have. But they are like Japanese in Japan. No, absolutely. Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. like Shinobi's yeah. American, but he's like doing all kinds of Asian crime syndicates. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, Banshee, I know you'll like that one. I mean. They are familiar with each other. I always like a gay Banshee sex moment. There is a random X-Men gold story where they like are in Nashville together and they bond over liking Elvis Presley. <laughs> Why not? why not um this one's a little bit out there Jetstream. you guys talked about Jetstream being gay after college and i decided that Jetstream should be gay yeah i'd be into that they both know what it's like not to have legs that is true and they both know what it's like to be the least appreciated member of a team absolutely yeah they both fly there's something there you know there's something there Um, charles oh oh, sorry (laughs) no no keep no go keep going Okay, um, I'm gonna like go through these a lot faster then. Okay, uh, Cable, James Proudstart, Grey Crow, Gorgon, Thor, Colossus, Adrian and or Jared Corbo, Bishop, and unfortunately Fabian Cortez. 
I do feel like he and Fabian Cortez were vibing, unfortunately. It would be fucked up. It would be like a yeah. bad choice for him, but it could be very funny as a story. And then Bobby could like snap him out of it or yes. whoever, you know? Or alternatively, like they stop because Shiro refuses to wear the Magneto helmet and like there's just mm, no other way that they Yeah, that could be tricky. Charles March writes, hello, Connor and Justin. Shiro, in my opinion, is what you, Connor, have called a flag suit hero, a character that represents a particular country's nationalism in the book. So his switch to forsaking that for Krakoa seemed like a huge head tilt moment for me. Like Sabra, I'd have expected him to stay loyal to his country rather than his mutant identity. Does this switch vibe with you as a choice for the character? That's a great question. I think that the speech that Jerry wrote for him underlines it. I think that oh. basically the point is... He's realized that for his whole life, he's been used in the service of a nationalism that wasn't really serving him. He's now trying to be of service to mutants. I do think that the Inhumans versus X-Men period, while we mostly try to dry it, was very eye-opening for him. I think that he is more about mutant solidarity now. He also, in Secret Empire, was working with Emma and everybody in New Tian. For King Zorn. Yeah, which, like, again, like, let's not sweat it. No, but I did like that story. Shout out to Yeah, Jim yeah, yeah. Well, Jim Zub's always good. I think what really works for me is that he's also not really aligning himself with Krakoa. He's aligning himself with the X-Men. Right. Like, what that speech emphasizes to me is he talks about all these different causes that he's tried to fight for, like his country, the X-Men, the Avengers. And it seems like he's realizing that, like, one, again, he has been easily tricked so many times. And I think the way that he's trying to move past that is like rather than sort of declaring allegiance to any one group is to sort of try to be there for like everyone in the broadest possible way, like for mutants and for humans. And this X-Men team is specifically also about helping humans exactly. and doing outreach. Yeah. Like he's not working for the Quiet Council. He's working for Scott and Jean exactly. and their mission, which mm -hmm. is different. So yeah, I agree. That leads into an interesting question from Sam Guido, fellow mm. Discord moderator. Hi, Sam. Hi, Connor and Justin. Sunfire is such an icon. Not many superheroes are bitchy enough to quit the team and rejoin on literally the same page. It's wild to see him back on the main X-Men team with Cyclops, Gene, and Polaris, and I've really been enjoying seeing him get the page space he deserves. My question is, how do you think Sunfire feels about Captain Krakoa? For Sunfire, joining the X-Men was explicitly a rejection of being a nationalist hero. In issue two of Duggan's run, he says, Suddenly Krakoa arrived, and as good as it has been for us, I had already found fighting for country unfulfilling. So I asked to be chosen for the X-Men. Would he see Captain Krakoa as a corruption of the original purpose of the team? Justin, I'm so excited for your Cerebro debut and to hear your gay Sunfire thesis, your fellow mod, Sam Guido. First of all, thank you, Sam, for all the kind words. I absolutely agree with your read there. Like right now, it is clearly more about Scott, who very similarly, I think, resents the Captain Krakoa mantle because he Scott designed the X-Men. Right. Yeah, he designed the X-Men specifically as like, in opposition almost to or not like as be an alternative that. to the quiet right. council captain krakoa is a quiet council creation yeah it's clearly emma's idea yeah absolutely yeah obviously shiro has loaded feelings about that as someone who has had history as a flag suit character himself i'm hoping they'll talk about it for sure the captain krakoa arc seems to be a long-term arc which is not what we initially thought, but Jerry's got a plan. He says, like, this is an arc I'm doing. I feel like maybe they'll have a conversation about it. Yeah, no, it would be a good opportunity, like, even in the most unsubtle way of, like, speaking of flag suits, you know? <laughs> right, and it wouldn't even have to be that direct. It could be more oblique, but I do think that him saying, like, 
because Captain Krakoa is not wearing a flag, right? Because Krakoa doesn't have a flag. That's the interesting thing. But it's still a flag suit character because it's like explicitly in the Captain America mold. So for Sunfire, who was also a Captain America type person for his country, that's a conversation I'd like to see them have. Yeah, absolutely. I think that he probably is like a little turned off by it. Because like he's seen how this goes, right? Right. And the whole point was we're doing something different mm-hmm. with this team. So yeah. I'm interested to see how that develops. Last question. Krakoa welcomes writes, Sunfire is huge in Japan and he was an expert Mumbai for some reason. So he might even be big in India too. What other mutants do you think went underappreciated as American superheroes? There's just so much competition, but were hits back home or abroad. Well, Darkstar, as we've mentioned, like there are those Russian heroes who I'm sure are huge in Russia, Ursa Major, all those people mm-hmm. who like mm-hmm. Americans just don't think about. I think Dazzler is probably way bigger in Europe and Asia than she is in America. Of course, like, Kylie Minogue. Yeah. Kylie Minogue way. Mm-hmm. I bet Rogue, actually, when you look at like art in Japan in particular, where they're like, this is the American character. It is always like a southerner in a cowboy hat. So like they probably find Rogue really charming in that way. Mm-hmm. That I think would work for them. Maybe especially because she has a bond that's well recognized with Sunfire. They were accused of terrorism together that one time. So maybe she's got a Japanese following. I've got one. I think North Star is bigger abroad than he is in like Canada and America. Sure, that would work. Like, that would make he's sense. He's gay, you know, like that's got to get him some publicity, right? He was an Olympian also. Absolutely, yeah. And especially so on a global where, stage. Like, yeah, absolutely. Also, I feel like Polaris's meteoric rise is no way contained to just America. No, Polaris has gone global, baby. Polaris is She is taking selfies in Vietnam with the kids. Yeah, everybody loves Polaris now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Listen, I've always liked her, but has she rocketed into my top five? Yes. Because this run, Jerry is killing it with that character speaking of people who are like mean in a funny way like yes it's so good i want more of them actually i want lorna and shiro to be bitchy together on an adventure (laughs) they were i'm not gonna make you talk about this but they were not only horsemen of apocalypse together but they were in all new x factor (laughs) he was in all new x factor for like a second (laughs) before the book ended or got canceled or whatever he was also with gambit in that one before we were freed from all new X Factor, Shiro did appear in it briefly, yes. Well, Justin, is there anything else you'd like to say about Sunfire before we Oh, wrap I don't up? think you want to ask me that question. We're going to be here all night. Justin, why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online and plug anything you want to plug? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at Justin's Parked. That's Justin S. Park E.D. I am working on a video game called Pico for Kitten Cup Studio. It is a cat-themed tea-making simulator. You can wishlist us on Steam to find out more about progress on the game and when it's released. Um, I think that's about it. Well, thank you for being my guest. This was super fun. It's great to actually chat face-to-face, or at least virtually. (laughs) And I'm sure that... This is the first of many Justin Park moments on Cerebro because I think this was a fun (laughs) jaunt together through this complicated character's complicated publication history. 
You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the merch store, the Discord server, and much, much more at Cerebrocast.com. Please join the conversation, but don't bring any bad vibes. It's Justin's job to deal with those, and you don't want to inconvenience Justin. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier at patreon.com slash cerebrocast, you can get an ad-free experience plus exclusive access to the secret files, Patreon bonus episodes, the first House of Z Q&A that I'm doing monthly. It's a little bit late because it's the January one, but it's coming like the first week of February. But it should be up. If you would like to send questions for the House of Z Q&A, send those to cerebrocast at gmail.com with House of Z question in the subject line. However, you can only hear them if you are a member of the House of Z. So honor system. But also, why would you ask if you can't hear the episode? Point is, join us on Patreon. It's a rollicking good time. I've got other fun bonus content coming down the pipe soon. Next week's episode, episode 69, will feature returning guest Josh Cornillon to talk about Stacey X, the ultimate sex-positive X-Man. Thank you, as always, for your support. And until next time, everybody, thank you for listening, and bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men.